It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I mean, what's that football group is doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast, Steve Pelizzolo, Sam Monson. We are live on YouTube. I'm coming to you from a rogue Airbnb. Sam's in studio. Sam, how you doing, man? Not bad, Steve. Not bad. How about you? It's a nice little setup you got there. You got a tree. You got a plant. It's all very Yeah, we got uh, stuff. Hard. If someone walks in the door, you'll be able to see it. And someone let me know if someone's uh, breaking in over here. Appreciate it. But uh, And appreciate you bearing with me, not being in studio here. But, Sam, it's week two. we got a ton to talk about, as always. Look, yeah. You ready to get into it? Uh-huh. A lot of games. Let's go. All right. Where do we start? Where do you want to begin? Let's go. Um, how about the Colts with a win? we got to talk a little Anthony Richardson here. The Colts go 31-20 to over the Houston Texans. Anthony Richardson starts out hot, 6 for 10 for 56 yards, plus two rushing touchdowns, but ends up leaving the game. Gardner Minshew comes in, only four incompletions along the way. Minshew plays a good, solid game. And the Colts, with their first win of the season, Texans fall to 0-2. Yeah, a very conclusive win as well for Indianapolis. Like this game, they got out to an early lead they got it fairly well under control at halftime Minshew looked good never let it in danger being uh, of slipping away and so much of the production the yardage totals you know the 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 Houston had came late in the game when they're just constantly trying to peg back something um just a, a bummer for the Colts for Anthony Richardson I mean he was looking very good to start the game the kind of plays you expect him to make one was, uh, you know, one of his touchdowns was just the kind of usual standard Anthony Richardson rushing play. But then they started getting creative with the running. The the second touchdown, you know, a bit of a kind of trick, like a fake end around. And then Richardson bails back out the other side, ends up with a fairly comfortable, not quite a walk-in touchdown, but pretty much. Then gets, you know, a shot as he goes over the goal line. And it's one of those head bounces off the turf backwards type of deals and out for concussion. So... You know, we don't know if he'll be back next week. I mean, the good news for the Colts was Gardner Minshew came in and showed why Gardner Minshew is one of the best backup quarterbacks in the NFL, which is, you know, there's that gray line between 
good backup quarterback and marginal starting quarterback, and those guys can win games, can play particularly well, can look good, and Minshew not just steadied the ship, but did a, a good job of maintaining everything that Richardson had already built early in the game. Yeah, the other thing to add, I think, for the Colts, Zach Moss comes in, runs really, really well. Uh, last week, they struggled with Deion Jackson running the ball. So, of course, the Jonathan Taylor saga and you know him being out at least for the first four weeks. Zach Moss looked good, man. Seven force missed tackles. And we always talk about when you have that running quarterback and you combine it with a tough-to-tackle running back, it does make the offense that much better. I think Zach Moss added that. And the other thing to highlight, too, that we all kept talking about during the preseason was the Colts' offensive line. I think they've been... Yeah. As we've expected, at least, Sam, uh, very solid up front from a run blocking and pass blocking in particular uh, from that standpoint. And just to you know, put a bow on the Richardson discussion, another week where he you know did the same stuff as far as you know going through reads, you know, throwing to the right person uh, for the most part. Accuracy wasn't you know perfect again, but he, he he does look very comfortable. I think as far as running the offense, and as you mentioned, few new wrinkles coming. With the run game, and uh, yeah, hope Richardson's back because we're starting to see what that Colts offense is capable of. Yeah, he's really um, personifying that discussion that we had at draft time, which is he is not raw. He's inexperienced. He hasn't seen it all. Like, he, he just needs reps, but he isn't this crazy. Like, right now, Anthony Richardson looks less raw than Justin Fields, who's been in the NFL for three years. Like, there, he's further along in terms of quarterbacking development than a guy like Fields is, um, despite the fact that he's so little experience. So the discussion around Richardson, I think, was always largely, not everywhere, a lot of people had this right, but there were a lot of people that had just the cliched version of what Anthony Richardson should be, given that he's barely started any games in their minds, and he isn't that guy, and he's showing that already. Um, The other thing to note about Zach Moss, by the way, not just came in, played well, all that kind of stuff, he almost didn't leave the field. Um, no other running back got snaps. The only time he was off the field for one snap, like the offensive line <clears throat> and Alec Pierce all played every single snap of the game, which for them was 56 snaps on offense. Zach Moss and Michael Pittman played 55. So he, he was not on the field for one offensive snap and no other running backs got snapped. So in this world of, well, who's going to get you know the workload? Who's going to be a, a by committee kind of guy? I mean, Zach Moss this week almost literally did not leave the field for that. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And you just you just never know when you could predict that. You have no idea when that's you know when that's how uh, a team is going to roll as far as usage goes. On the other side, the Houston Texans, you know, CJ Stroud has now dropped back 116 times, so it's almost 60 times per game, 58 per game over the last two weeks. That's total attempts and sacks and all that. Um, that's a ton, and yeah. obviously game flow is a huge part of it. Does feel like Houston's got to get back some semblance. I don't want to say the word balance, but certainly need to uh, even things out a little bit where they're not just playing from behind, putting that much on C.J. Stroud. And I want to say Stroud's 
again, similar maybe to what we expected. Some of his in-rhythm throws, when it's there, just fantastic. Looks very good. It's anything outside of uh, structure, outside of rhythm, that, you know, is a bit of a question mark for Stroud so far. Yeah, I mean, given the situation, i.e. they were down for most of this game and he had to kind of do it by himself, you know, they, they couldn't. It was going to slant towards that direction of, you know, pass-heavy game script got away from them type of thing. Um, I thought he looked pretty good, actually. Like, way better than he did in his debut. Um, The biggest problem was sacks, pocket awareness, all that kind of stuff looped together. It wasn't helped by the fact that his offensive line isn't as good as the the one for the Colts. Um, He's going to have, I think, a turnover-worthy play in there as well. It's the fumble, which I think is it's kind of harsh, but you... You know, once the pocket is collapsing on him, it's on him to make sure that ball is protected. But it was the second guy coming in that literally just punched it straight out. So, you know, maybe that gets taken off him, but I think that it'll stay. Either way, like that's the one glaring negative from his tape in almost 400 yards worth of production from a game script that was away from him very early in the game. I think that was a quite an impressive sophomore game for, uh, for uh, C.J. Stroud. Nico Collins was his top target, seven catches for 146. I, I couldn't tell the touchdown, um, which was a nice play by C.J. Stroud, getting out of the pocket, and um, th- he throws the ball up. It looks like Nico almost intercepted it, yeah. pass intended for someone else. I think it's completed either way. But, yeah, Nico Collins with a huge game, nice catch and run for a long gain as well. And your boy, Tank Dell, gets into the end zone late. That's right. That's right. Look, I, I, Excuse yeah, me. game flow-wise, we don't want Houston. I, I don't think they want to play like this. But with Nico Collins, Robert Woods, get more Tank Dell in there, it's not a bad receiving core the way they've been playing. Don't give me this. Nico Collins is his top target crap. Ten targets for Tank Dell, nine targets for Nico <laughs> Collins. Sure, Nico's went for more yardage, you know, but whatever. Top target, the most targeted receiver, that was Tank Dell. Yeah, you're uh, you're justified there, Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Anderson with a huge like a the very first pass of the game, quick win against Braden Smith at right tackle, and then not much else after that. I was like, wow, Will Anderson looking great right off the bat. Didn't uh, create a ton of pressure again. Going back to that Colts offensive line, looking yeah. really good through two weeks, and see, uh, uh, not what they were last year with all those injuries. No, I mean, again, this is so we're we're two weeks in. Some things we were saying all off season are going to be quite clearly true already some things are going to be quite clearly wrong already that feels like one that's going to be true from the outset that that offensive line for indianapolis had no business being as bad as it was last year and it was almost certainly destined for some kind of rebound now did you also see the uh, the flash of will mallory skills tight end for the colts yeah only 10 snaps but yeah got in there made Tell some everybody plays. about it let's go i'm just saying will will mallory flashing Man's Are we back ability. here? You're just gonna you're just gonna call out everything that players mm-hmm. that you like did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good for you. You Thanks. don't learn too many new skills, Sam. I know what to expect. But as a parent, you've had to learn so many new skills to provide for your family. How to do copious amounts of laundry, meal plan for even the pickiest eater, and now how to protect your family's financial future. Fabric by Gerber Life provides an easy one-stop shop for your family's financial needs, offering high-quality term life insurance policies plus other financial solutions in one easy online hub fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you it's all online and on your schedule you can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required 
So join thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, Sam, let's go to Baltimore 27, Cincinnati 24. By the way, you did cover Thursday night football on Friday's show, Mm -hmm. I assume, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, we did. Look at this. We're like two games lighter this week because of the Monday night doubleheader, the Thursday night coverage already on Friday. Um, So if you're looking for Vikings-Eagles, check out the PFF NFL podcast or show from Friday on YouTube. All right, so Ravens go to 2-0, 27-24. to Cincinnati Bengals fall to 0-2. For, I was a little surprised by this, Sam. The second straight year, I remember that. They were 0-2 last year. But the Bengals have been 0-2 four out of the last five years. Of course, last year, the Bengals did right the ship and get to the AFC Championship. But looking bleak after two weeks in Cincinnati, Joe Burrow, the calf is you know flared up a little bit. And Baltimore, a ton of credit. Just a very clean game offensively. Lamar Jackson, the run game, the defense. Baltimore looking really good here at 2-0. Yeah, I was just talking to Mike in the booth before we came on. Like The fact that they're 0-2, obviously not good, but we've seen last year it's not a disaster. 0-2 in the division, I mean, that makes it worse. The fact that the two losses have come to to Cleveland and Baltimore, that's not great. Um, But honestly, the biggest problem is... We've come out of that game, and Joe Burrow has re-aggravated that calf injury to some description, right? We don't know how bad it is. We don't know how long it's going to keep him out, but that was an injury that kept him out basically the entirety of training camp. Now, sure, that was probably an overabundance of caution. Week one is the important date. Forget everything before that, but he was out a while, right? If he's re-aggravated that now, they're already in an 0-2 hole. Like They can't afford to not have Joe Burrow for any particular length of time so that I think that's the real concern for Cincinnati like this has been a bad start to the season which would not be catastrophic if you could rely on Burrow because overall the offense was way better in this game like it didn't look the same as it did week one they were able to move the ball all the the receivers had reasonable days they scored some points they could have should have maybe you know been in this game in terms of winning it Burrow had a bad red zone interception that probably really tipped the game towards Baltimore but if if that was the mood we were coming out of this game with and Burrow's injury status wasn't a question, it would be, you know, okay, on to the next game. We'll, we'll get this thing turned right. Now it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, it's one of those – look, when we've joked about calf injuries on here in part because I had a fake one one time that put me on the injured list hmm. when I was a professional player. And so we joke about them, but – all of our medical professionals do talk about how easy they are to aggravate. And again, Burrow got the calf injury, what, second day of training camp? It was very, very early in camp and was out for well, the majority also, of camp. Also, he had already done something to it. Like when he did right. when he did the one that was sort of on video and everybody saw and the, the, the real injury, his calf already had a sleeve on it. Like clearly it was something was at him already that he'd tweaked or whatever and then he went then it went in that first uh, couple of practices in training camp that kept him out until week one and now that same calf has been re-aggravated so this is potentially effectively the same injury has been going on for six weeks plus like that's a long time now to be one thing yeah it's not great in Cincinnati and I'll say you did say hey the offense kind of figured it out 
It was another slow start, though. I mean, we were yeah. almost halfway through the game. He's about three yards per attempt. Burrow, you know, some of his best pat. He had a great throw to Tyler Boyd that was dropped in the end zone. Um, you mentioned the interception, just staring his receiver down in the tight red zone. Geno Smith, uh, Geno Stone, sorry, with a really nice break on the ball to pick it off. It's still not the Bengals' offense that we expected. And you throw the calf injury on top of that. Not great for the Bengals right now. But I want to flip it to the other side in the in the Baltimore Ravens and give them proper credit. As I said earlier, you know, another game where uh, it's the new offense. And if you just looked at the stat line, right, you get your 62 yards from Gus Edwards and Lamar has 54 and Justice Hill has 41. You add it all up and it's like, hey, the Ravens had 178 yards on the ground. Lamar throws for 237. Um, I thought Lamar looked really sharp. Again, there's uh, there was another fumble in there where he held the ball a little bit too long. But I thought the one of the stories of the game, the uh, Ronnie Stanley hurt, the Ravens banged up up front. Lamar is very well protected, and I thought he played a nice, patient game in the pocket. I think his arm looks a little bit better. I go through these phases every now and again where a guy really rips it a couple times, and I look, man, Lamar's arm looks pretty good. He zipped a couple in there, hit Zay Flowers on a beautiful. Yes. 52-yard post. Uh, I think this was what the Ravens wanted with this offense, right? Spreading the ball around and Lamar really facilitating extremely well from the pocket. That Zay Flowers pass. Like, I don't think Lamar Jackson gets enough credit for his arm strength generally. It's not in the, you know, Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen category, but it's it's in the next group down, right? That, that group of quite a few um, quarterbacks who have really impressive arms but not absolute superhuman freak show strength that pass to Zay Flowers like that was a 50 yard pass a little bit more 52 that literally hit him in the head on a like a frozen rope it wasn't one with air put under it you know let him run under it. it was like he was in pretty tight coverage on a post and he just fired in a 50 yard pass that literally hit like he caught it hands against his face because the ball hit him there absolute bullet that hit his receiver exactly where it needs to be. Um, and that was another week of, you know, Zay Flowers making a lot of plays. Like, I wasn't quite as dominant and obvious as week one, but yeah, Zay Flowers is, is impressing. And Nelson Aguilar out here making plays as well. Like, they did have this spread offense, you know, multiple receivers at all times, and Lamar's just back there dealing. Uh, Odell Beckham Jr., I believe, he got hurt little late in the game as well um, but yeah you're right Nelson Aguilar you just never know which season he's going to show up right remember five years into a season Nelson Aguilar had two good years mm -hmm. and they were completely different types like one time as a slot receiver one time as a deep threat but yeah he, Aguilar on the 17 yard fade for a touchdown really nice throw from Lamar Jackson there as well so yeah I think this was the type of Raven Ravens offense that they were hoping for little Mark Andrews a little yeah. bit from the receivers a little running back and Lamar uh, running the show, and again, looking to pass first, running when he needed to. I think as far as concerns go on Cincinnati's side, just the lack of pass rush, right? The the inability to get to Lamar Jackson with, uh, you know, with quick disruption, I think is just something to keep an eye on for, for Cincinnati. And not that Baltimore was great from mm -hmm. that from that perspective either, but something to keep an eye on, I think, for Cincinnati and their defensive front yeah. uh, moving forward here. Not even just the pass rushing, like, the defense in general, I mean, they got handled in this game. Whatever about Joe Burrow and the offense and that not looking great. Remember, 
you know, one of the touchdowns was a Charlie Jones punt return touchdown, right? Right. Um, So the offensive production was a little bit worse than the scoreboard looks, but their defense gave up a ton of yardage, both in, you know, through the air and on the ground. DJ Reader was their uh, best defensive lineman, I think, but one guy can't stop the run by himself. Everybody else got pretty much destroyed by that Baltimore offense. So, you know, Cincinnati's defense, we've become accustomed to viewing as one of the best in the NFL, very good game to game, mixing things up, changing game plans. I mean, they got they were as as far off the pace, I think, in this game overall as the offense was. So Baltimore two and zero, commanding lead now in the AFC North. We'll see what happens with the Browns, of course, tonight and Cincinnati, like I said earlier, uh, 0-2 once again. And uh, we've seen them bounce back before. They have the Rams coming in for one of two Monday night football games next week. Got to right the ship pretty quickly here in Cincinnati and all eyes on Joe Burrow's calf this week to see if we can get any kind of report and um, you know, see if that's going to be something that lingers throughout the season. And that Rams game no longer looks like an obvious W to put on the schedule the way they've been starting the season. Have we talked to uh, – are we going to try to go to that game, Sam? We're going to go, know. right? It's here. Talk to Zach. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, God. So we might be. We might be live tweeting right from the game. You never know. God we knows. Shall see. God knows we're not getting in via Cincinnati. Zach's the one that can get us in the building. No. Sorry, press box is full here. Sorry <laughs> for the uh, PFF guys, you know. All right, Buffalo Bills 38, Las Vegas Raiders 10. Just six days after the heartbreaking loss on a punt return for a touchdown, Buffalo Bills, they get back on track. 38-10 to 10 win here. Uh, it, Ra- Raiders move the ball early and then really nothing after that. This was a, an outstanding performance by the Bills defense. And once again, you'll see it when the pass when the PFF numbers come out and everything. A lot of times when you have a great defensive performance, it's hey, the defensive line, they did this, they did that. It wasn't even a pass rush deal for Buffalo. They won up front. Their defensive tackles were outstanding in the run game against the Raiders, but uh just the Bills, the back end, uh, not not giving up big plays, winning up front in the run game and then the Buffalo Bills offense looking completely different. Josh Allen just six an average depth of target of six, it was like, hey, maybe he got the message. I'll have more on that, but I'll let you react. Josh Allen not turning the ball over the way he did on Monday night this week. Yeah, uh, and the thing about the defensive performance was it, it didn't start off that way. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo and the Raiders marched straight down the field the first drive, put it in the end zone. You're like, ooh, that's that's kind of a slap to the face, and we'll see if that's actually going to – you know, if Buffalo's going to wobble because of that. Or – if that was going to impact Josh Allen. You know, he obviously knew that he had to go into this game and not do what he did the last game. But would the fact that the Raiders just immediately score a touchdown and put the Bills in a 7 nothing hole, you're like, uh-oh, does Josh Allen now feel that he's got to go be Josh Allen again? But no, this is why that game against the Jets was so frustrating because this was the performance they needed from Josh Allen. Just go out there and don't do anything dumb. Take what's there. Be conservative. Don't be crazy. And you know there was there was a there was still a couple of hits or a couple of runs where it's like, dude, stop trying to hurdle safeties that know it's coming. Like what? No, stop, stop. Um, like he tried to hurdle. It was a Marcus Epps who was a, a former college teammate of his, which was probably a good thing because if it had been anybody else, he might have you know caught him in midair and launched him into the floor. But like, dude, stop doing that. Um, but yeah, this was 
Like, this was the performance. It makes Monday night more frustrating because you know he's capable of doing this. Um, but it's also exactly what they needed. Like, the Bills are so good on both sides of the ball that most of the time you don't need anything like what Josh Allen is trying to do. You need this. You need just don't go crazy. And then when you do run into, like, an elite, awesome team that are giving you everything you can handle, then let's tap into the Josh Allen well and start, you know, pulling up the plays that we don't have any answer for on defense. That, like, this was what the version of the Bills that we, I think, expected to see and need to see for most of their games. It's funny because, you know, I'm looking through the stat line and I see the low average depth of target and then I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, when was the last time he did this? Is this how rare is this? And I, I was reminded, I, I actually had forgotten. Remember early last season, Allen was playing like this. It was against yeah. the Rams opening night. He was just underneath, underneath, taking everything. And then he'd go over the top once or twice when he needed to. And he did that, I think, weeks one and two last year. And we, we were probably saying, hey, where's, you know, why isn't Josh Allen throwing the ball down the field more? It was, but it was more. Hey, he's playing game manager. They want him to do that. And then they'll, like you said, I, I like that tap into the Josh Allen well when needed. Uh, so it's not like he hasn't done this before, I guess is my no. point. So it was 31 for 37, right? So he can make good decisions. He can, you know, get the, even the other night against the Jets. If you take away the four turnovers, he did throw the ball pretty well, other than that. So he's <laughs> capable of not going crazy and saying, look, double coverage, let's go. You know, he's capable of doing it. Um, and then the other thing to highlight is James Cook just having a huge game. So you get the, the Bills have a big drive before the half to go up uh, 21 to 10, I believe it was. And then in the second half, it's like, all right, we're going to play with the lead here. We're going to run away with this. And that's where James Cook is breaking off some big runs and Damian Harris finds the end zone and they get Latavius Murray in there. In the underneath passing, this was a game where, okay, we don't need Josh Allen to be the superstar. Uh, maybe it's because it's against the Raiders, but you need more of these games if you're the Bills. And I'm, I want to see if they can, you know, can James Cook be a huge contributor when they do have to play the Chiefs and they do have to play the best teams in the league. But this was the good, balanced all-around offensive effort that you want to see from Buffalo. Yeah, and balance is, is a good term because they spread it around a ton as well. Like, they didn't, you know, you could have also, not maybe not forgiven, but you could understand them wanting to go, oh, Stephon Diggs looked pretty pissed on Monday night. Let's feed him the ball a lot. Stephon Diggs had seven targets, but so did Gabe Davis, who had a big game, one of his games that sort of makes you think he should be that secondary target to Diggs all the time. Dalton Kincaid had six targets. Dawson Knox had five. James Cook had four. So that's, you know, five guys on the offense that had at least four targets. The ball was being spread around quite a bit. Um, yeah, it just, I mean, you just come back to this idea of that's what makes that game by Josh Allen so frustrating is he, you know he's capable of this type of game, which is the more relevant one to have in almost all circumstances and certainly the more important one to have against the Jets in that game. Did you see also the play that Matt Milano made on defense? Just, I, I did want to highlight that. Jimmy G's two interceptions. You described that one. I'll talk about the other one. Well, Jimmy G essentially hits uh, Josh Jacobs like in the face, you know, perfect pass, like right at him, straight in front of him, hands up to take the ball, and then Matt Milano basically just jumps over the back of him and just like, takes the ball over the top of his head, just takes it away from him. Like, I, they, I think they said on the commentary, you know, he mossed him, 
which is kind of true, but Moss usually did that, you know, deep down the field or in the end zone maybe. But Milano just did this like in the middle of the field randomly on a, on a perfectly thrown pass to a running back in tight coverage that ended up being an interception. You stole my line. I was watching with uh, avid PFF NFL podcast listener Mike. I was over at his house watching the games yesterday, and he saw that play. He said, tomorrow morning, say Matt Milano mossed him. Make mm. sure you do that. Quote me on that, and you already stole it. Quote Mike. Mike had one you know, one chance to contribute here. Um, you know, For the Jimmy Garoppolo EPA king, who's usually the beneficiary of either you know yak or his teammates performance or whatever not last week but you know generally mm. jimmy garoppolo's two interceptions the one again where you said matt milano just steals it from josh jacobs the other one uh big long gregory rousseau tips a screen pass terrell bernard makes a really nice diving catch there so yeah there were some weird interceptions in this game and, and some nice plays by buffalo um and again i just want to highlight buffalo's defensive tackles uh daquan jones and Ed Oliver, Ed Oliver had a huge game. He had a play where he just pushed the guard right back into the running back for a four-yard loss. Josh Jacobs, what did he finish with? He had nowhere to run. He had three, what was it, uh, nine carries for negative two. Mm. And that was Buffalo up front. One of the big questions coming into the year, who's going to play linebacker? Terrell Bernard had a really nice game in the uh, you know against the run. So Buffalo, the... Pretty dominant performance, as you said, after that first drive from the Raiders. Yeah, nine yards for minus two yards with 11 yards after contact. <laughs> like oh, yeah. He, he had to they gain were... 11 yards after contact to get a two-yard loss overall. And this was a week after Buffalo's run defense was, was the weakness, right? Zach Wilson comes in. They're still allowing an 83-yarder to Brees Hall. So uh, I think Buffalo... Tick, they, they they ticked a lot of bo uh, boxes in a in a big way in reminding people, hey, we're still the Buffalo Bills yeah. despite the right. disappointing loss and the one that we inflicted upon ourselves because of the turnovers. Yeah, classic bounce back. You know, week two game like week one was bad. It was disappointing. It was worrying. Not because you know Josh Allen is that guy every week, but because he's capable of being that guy at any given moment. But this was a week that showed you know the Bills are still the Bills. Like it's. The, the reasons for concern were not, oh, they're they're fraudulent. They're not going to be good this year. It was, you, that's a ticking time bomb. Like, you don't know when that's going to go off, and that's the worry. One last thing I want to highlight, Raiders first-round pick Tyree Wilson, another rough game. He's, you know, supposed to be an upside project type of player coming off the foot injury, but no pressure, and he's had uh, some issues in the run game in the first two weeks. Him and uh, Him and Trayvon Walker watch for me every week, just fascinated by the NFL, loving those upside edges that high in the draft but we're back with another week of football DraftKings sportsbook is keeping us in the nfl action with great offers every single game day new customers could bet five dollars and get two hundred dollars instantly in bonus bets throw five down on any of this week's epic matchups and walk away an instant winner and DraftKings isn't stopping there this is for all customers they could take advantage of two new offers every game day this september football's more fun when you're in on the action so download the app now and sign up with code pff New customers can bet just $5 and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL with code PFF. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. All right. What else we got here for football games? It's tough on the one laptop. I don't have the multiple screens, you know, bouncing back and forth. How about Atlanta, 25, Green Bay, 24? 
we we called this the game of the week, Sam. Kinda, Discord or our uh, the Discord mm-hmm. called this the game of the week. They thought it was the closest one and a half point spread when we picked it way back last Wednesday, and it was real close. But Packers were up two, ready to cover at the end. But Atlanta gets the win, walk off field or game winning field goal, twenty five to twenty four, and uh, good good on the Discord. Saying, "Hey, this is the closest game, toughest one to call." You and I were going back and forth. How do you call it? It was a, it was a, a a really nice NFC matchup. Atlanta goes to two and zero here. Yeah, no, it was a good game, um, and it, it was it was a fun game as well. Like any game involving Atlanta is always going to be an entertaining watch because that offense is so unusual by design. I mean, the way it's set up with all these insane matchup weapons, but like helmed by Desmond Ritter. Um, the whole thing is just going to be fascinating to watch in any given week. And Green Bay did their part as well. Like, flea flicker, play one, you know, despite them not having their receivers. Like, one takeaway, I think, from Green Bay is that group is good, but they badly miss Christian Watson. Like, not having him there, it's the one guy that changes the dynamic because of what he brings to the table, which is that just absolutely absurd mix of athleticism and speed and size and all that kind of stuff. And when everybody else is a complementary piece to that, it's imposing. When everybody else is just, that's your offense, like that's your receiving core, it's like, all right, we've got some nice players here, but we're definitely missing a fairly significant piece of all this. But that flea flicker, I mean, number one, it was a cool play. Number two, those are the types of plays when you start sort of looking back and you, you look at yardage and, you know, all those kinds of things. Like, those are the plays that get missed, right? Because defensive pass interference and A.J. Terrell, first play of the game deep down the field, doesn't show up in any stats other than one next to the penalty column. But that's a big, deep, explosive play in terms of passing that just gets nullified and, and gets lost in all the scores. So, yeah, I mean – I I was entertained by this game. I thought this was a fun game. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about that pass game. Then we'll get to the Falcons and um, maybe some more Bijan Love coming up soon. But um, Jordan Love, he, he's got another one of those stat lines. He throws for three touchdowns again. Hundred thirteen point five passer rating. Fourteen of twenty five for one fifty one. It's a. It's another week. I don't think the grade is going to match that. I don't think it's going to be. A, the grade was fine. I think, you know, one of the – he had a dropped interception in there that's probably on the receiver. But you're talking about the young receivers. Hey, if they have Christian Watson there, you're feeling good. You know, Dontavius Wicks turns, what, like a 20-yard pass into a 32-yard touchdown, breaks away. So this is where some of the stats come from from Jordan Love. You have Jaden Reed wide open in the flat. You have a tap pass uh, to Jaden Reed for a touchdown. The young receivers are intriguing, Sam. I do love that for the Packers, but – um, with Jordan Love, it, it did feel like early on, uh, maybe a little bit too quick. You know, the timing of the pass game was off at times, missed a few throws. They they did settle down. Um, I'm more impressed with the young receivers. That, But if they yeah. did have someone to tie it all together, I think it would be that much better for that Packers pass game. So um, Jordan Love, again, I think he was okay in this game. The, but again, if you look at the three touchdowns, no interceptions, and the passer rating, once again this week, yeah, it might not really tell the whole story for Love because of the uh, yak-induced touchdowns. No, I, I really am impressed by that young group. Like, I don't want it to be to come off as hating on that group. I'm just saying you put Christian Watson in there, and you have something really good, actually. Like, Christian Watson, Musgrave, Dobbs, Jaden Reed. Like, that is a very good group of guys, even though 
the most experienced of them is a second-year receiver. Um, it's just that when you don't have Watson in there, it definitely does miss something and isn't quite at the same level. Yeah, like I, Jordan Love is at the moment. So I think number one question, right? You're going from this ridiculous sequence of Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers to now Jordan Love in the course of like 25, what is it, 35 years? Um the, the number one question is, like, is this guy a viable starting quarterback? Forget anything else. Forget, like, can he be the next Hall of Famer in the, in the line? The number one question is, can he do this at all? <clears throat> I think we've already seen the answer to that is yes. Like, Jordan Love can be a starting quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. He's already shown that in two games. The question now is, all right, how good can he actually be? That is obviously still an open question. We've only got two games, and in those two games – his production or the numbers have not necessarily uh, tied directly to how he's actually been performing. I think there have been some good plays in both games. There's also been some negative plays in both games. So, I, you know, right now I think step one for them is, is answered. Like, he can be their guy. They don't have to panic. But it's just going to take time to work out, like, where he's going to land in in the range of outcomes, particularly for a quarterback like him who – is going to be stylistically um, volatile. Like, there are going to be some big plays and some bad plays in there as well. And those guys, it's always about the distribution. Like, what is the frequency of each one? Because that determines... Like, Josh Allen and Jameis Winston are on the are in the same side of a spectrum of style of quarterbacks, right? But they're vastly different in terms of how good they are because the frequency of the things that they both do at similar rates is different. Right? And, and the, right. the frequency distribution difference can take you from being Jameis Winston, which is, this is so frustrating, I'm going to bench you and you're never getting a starting job back, all the way to Josh Allen, which is you're still an all-pro caliber quarterback, even if every couple of weeks we're going to want to bang your head against a brick wall because of the idiot things you're doing. Like, so that's basically where we are with, with Jordan Love is we're just going to have to wait and see. I thought, yeah, and I, I thought Jordan Love had some good, good plays with his legs. You know, a couple first downs or uh, a nice 24-yarder in there. Um, the last pass that he threw in a comeback attempt, it's fourth down, hits Samari Ture over the middle. Ture kind of loses it on the way to the ground. That was one of the best throws of the day for Jordan Love. Mm-hmm. All I'm warning, you know, this is what we do on the PFF NFL podcast, just warning people. If you look at, well, three touchdowns, no picks, it's like all three of those touchdowns were kind of um, schemed up or because of his receivers. And that's the thing that's influencing your perception of Jordan Love and his stat line, and I, I just think it's a, it's a little off so far. But um, Jordan Love hasn't been a disaster. I think he's been solid through two games. He's been okay. And, yeah, like you said, there's more to see there. Um, from a Falcons perspective, I, I thought it was, um, you know, last week Atlanta kind of got beat up on the offensive line by the Carolina Panthers. And uh, they, this was more of what Atlanta was doing last year, that outside zone scheme. Uh, across the board, run blocking really, really well. Chris Lindstrom uh, looking like he did last year before he really got paid. Caleb McGarry at right tackle. But boy, once a, once again, I'm more impressed with B. John Robinson and his ability to just slither through to pick up yards. Yeah. And one of the key plays, fourth and one on the game-winning drive. And they, they pitch it out to him. And, you know, there was a kind of a hole there, but he had to make a quick cut. His ability to just make a cut and see something and react to it immediately and maximize what there is just really fantastic right now, Bijan Robinson. 
I Bijan Robinson kind of honestly one of my biggest takeaways when he carries the ball is how good NFL defenses are. Like in high school, Bijan Robinson is the kind of player where in high school he would just score a touchdown every time he touched the ball, like because he beats so many players every single time with a cut or with a move or whatever. And then in in college, it starts to look like Reggie Bush, you know, where it's like it's not happening every play, but it's enough to get you like nine yards per carry. And then the NFL, it's like all it's doing is turning an eight-yard gain into a 15-yard gain. You know, it's like you're definitely adding value, but NFL defenses are still so good that they're stopping you anyway. There was one run. I, I, I don't remember. It was relatively early in the game and didn't go for that much. It was like a 12-yard carry. But he had like four or four five. Cu- four cuts, yeah. right? He was slaloming. Right. right? Like right? four or five individual moves. Each one gained him an extra like two yards till the next guy hit him or the next guy came along. And he had to do this like in a sequence at full speed, you know, in a move. It was like a fluid sort of dance routine. And all it did was gain him 12 yards. You're like, dude, like this is just NFL defenses are so freaking good that you can have a guy who one-on-one is basically unstoppable. And like he could string a sequence of these together, and it's still only going to turn, I don't know what, you know, an average running back maybe gets you four or five on that play. And Bijan just turned it into 12 by virtue of being one of the best, like, runners we've seen come along in years. It's just, he's incredible, but it also does remind you just how good or how hard it is to beat NFL defenses. Uh, you mentioned earlier too, kind of the enigma of uh, Desmond Ritter, because again, I don't—it's another game. I don't think he was great. Uh, really nice touchdown pass to Drake London in there, but you see what that offense is capable of. Bijan had 48 yards receiving as well. You get Jonu Smith involved in the pass game. Kyle Pitts did not get as involved in this game. They did target him four, five times, only ends up with 15 yards. But Drake London and Mac Hollins, the two top leading receivers, as we said all offseason here, this entire group of skill positions from the running backs to the mostly big bodied pass catchers those the the ability to distribute all these mismatch types of players does put a a big burden on the defense and i think we're seeing that so far not that it's the best offense in the league or anything but you're getting some of those big plays from difficult to cover receivers from atlanta no you are um but as we said at the start it's all going to come down to desmond ritter um now, they're doing some interesting things. Like, they, they've been using Desmond Ritter in the design run game, what we were yep. preaching about. They did it in a really interesting way as well. They had him running essentially a, a read option from the pistol. Like, this is, this is the Colin Kaepernick playbook, right? Like, out of those San Francisco offenses. Pistol formation, zone read, Desmond Ritter carries the ball um, and gains, you know, some yardage. So that, I think, is an important part of this offense. Ritter's biggest problem at the moment, um, when he gets to the red zone, I don't know what he's looking at. Like, he has throws in the red zone, particularly in the end zone, where I genuinely don't know what he's even reading. Like, it kind of feels, I started playing Madden again recently because Tyler didn't know or didn't specify what, uh, what platform he had, so I ended up getting his game code. So I've been playing playing a little bit of Madden recently, and it reminded me that you know, that that stuff we talk about with the S2 cognition score, you know, quick, immediate, split-second processing, don't have that. Never had it, never will. So there are plays where you're like, I want to throw to the X receiver here. 
And then you read it, and like the X receiver's covered. I got to go somewhere else. Uh oh, mash a button, right? Just hit one of them. One of the other buttons has got somebody's got to be open. The X guy's covered. One of the other buttons on this controller goes to an open receiver. Just hit one. That's what it feels like Desmond Ritter does in the red zone, right? It's like I there's a play designed to go to this guy. Uh oh, that guy's covered. Mash a button. Just hit another button and fire the ball somewhere into the end zone. Let's just see what happens. That like that's what it feels like. That's how he analyzes the end zone and like that that doesn't fly as an nfl quarterback you just compared desmond ritter to your madden skills yeah your in the madden red zone stick skills that's what it feels like he does in the red zone like i have a design play drawn up to get to drake london but uh-oh drake london's covered here so i'm just gonna randomly mash a button on the controller and hope that the ball that, that goes to is open well the falcons are two and oh despite the Madden player at quarterback. This Let's was, go. by this, the way, just like along with the, um, with the Jordan Love stats not necessarily matching up his performance, Desmond Ritter should have thrown a pick six in this game. Like he tossed the ball right to Jair Alexander on a fourth and four, I think it was. And one of those, I mean, one of the most egregious decisions and throws of the week and Jair drops it. And it's nothing, just a turnover on downs. But you know, should have uh, been I gotta check set. the receiver. I think he's expecting a curl from the receiver, a little hitch from the receiver. I don't think Might there's anything he could have done the receiver that would have. Like if you're absolving no. a quarterback in this game from something, um, Jordan loves uh, one of his turnover-worthy plays was, I think, the only route run by one of his young receivers, and the receiver got owned on that play. Oh yeah, that's what I say. I, I think. I think that's probably on the receiver as well. I don't know, on the love one. We'll see what happens upon review here. Um, there's some discussion in the chat about Justin Fields. So let's get right to Tampa Bay 27, Chicago Bears 17. The Bucks also moved to 2-0, tied with the Falcons for first place. We'll see if the Saints can join them tonight. NFC South, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the year, not the most difficult schedules in the world. So now the Bucks, you know, looking pretty good. Offensively, Mike Evans with a huge game. Baker Mayfield's playing good ball. The Bucks' defense, we talked about Justin Fields maybe having some problems with the pass rush. He was just having problems with everything yesterday. So let's start on the Bucks side, at least here, Sam. Let's give them credit, and then we'll go into uh, some of the issues that the, the Bears are having. Uh, okay, let's do give that. The, I mean, the, like, look, the Bucks. Baker Mayfield's playing good ball. He's actually, you know, outside. First, first play of the game. Kind of forces one, could have thrown an interception. It was really clean outside of that. I This is the best I've seen Baker Mayfield throw the ball and actually throw with some anticipation, almost too quick on a couple passes. Um, this is the best I've seen Baker Mayfield play. And I'm, I'm not, you know, you know, you and I have talked about us being out on Baker because of the inconsistencies over the last five years. But I think Dave Canales, the offensive coordinator for the Bucs, not only bringing a more QB-friendly scheme to the mix here, but you know, tapping into the playmakers that they have, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, and getting Baker Mayfield playing on time and with confidence, really impressed by everything they're doing in Tampa Bay offensively right now. Yeah, I mean, 9.7 yards per attempt kind of speaks for itself, and he left some meat on the bone. I mean, Baker missed a uh, – he overthrew Chris Godwin, I think, for what could have should have been a touchdown. Um and it was like, a, I mean, that's a four-point miss because they ended up settling for a field goal on that drive on an open target into what into the end zone. So 
it is productive right now, and it's not like there's more to come if Baker Mayfield hits a few more of those plays. Um, they're Mike, almost yeah. Insane. Mike Evans going for a seventy yarder. He uh, your your guy. You're not not your guy, Tyreek Stevenson. But Evans like elbowed him in the head, goes up, gets the ball, runs away for seventy yards. That's uh. Mike Evans balling out here. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say is they're almost exactly evenly splitting right now um, yards after the catch and, you know, yards before the catch. Like, you see those things swing wildly in, in one direction. I think generally it's a good number to have balanced, you know, if you're getting help from your receivers, but not too much. So there's a division of labor there. The receivers for Tampa Bay are doing their work. Baker's doing his work. And everything's working. And the other element to all that is the offensive line, which is not – playing out of its mind good but is playing good enough you know we the, the the issue with an offensive line is always like does it reach the level of concern like does it reach a problematic level and I don't think this Bucks offensive line is hitting that it's not necessarily it's certainly not where it was when it was at its best and Tom Brady was cooking but it hasn't de- descended or devolved to the point where you're like this is breaking the offense and that that's allowing everything to work so Impressed with what Tampa Bay is doing offensively. Rashad White finds the end zone on the ground. Mayfield's playing, um, I would say, pretty sharp overall. And uh, Evans playing like a man possessed out there in a contract year for the Bucs. We'll see what ends up happening there. Or, you know, people thought maybe at the trade deadline that Mike Evans might be available because the Bucs roster itself was not looking good. We didn't know what we'd get from Baker Mayfield, but they also, every NFC South team, has an easy schedule. So we've we've only seen the Bucks play the Bears, who look pretty bad, and the Vikings, who you know they're also zero and two competitive, but uh, you know just an interesting story here with the Bucks moving to two and zero. On the other side, Chicago, uh, again the defense has given up that seventy yarder, and they're giving up uh, three hundred seventeen passing yards to Baker Mayfield. Second week in a row, the Bears defense has looked rough, but offensively, Justin Fields takes six sacks. And just, man, so many of them, he's just not throwing the ball and waiting for pressure to get there. It is just really poor right now from Justin Fields. Yeah. um, This is – so this is the problem with Justin Fields is when you're evaluating a young quarterback, all you really want is a clean evaluation. Like, let's just – and this was, remember, we had this with Baker, right, at the start of his career. It's like, let's just make sure it's Baker, not everything else. Like, his offensive line was a problem. You're like, if you could just fix that and we can be sure what Baker's problem is, let alone the offensive line. So, Chicago's offensive line last year was bad. They've tried to improve it this year. It's probably moving in the right direction, but it's still not good. So, you're like, you know, how much is Fields? How much is the offensive line? Um he took sacks yesterday where it's like even without checking the all 22 and like seeing where the receivers are and all that kind of thing like there are some sacks that look obviously terrible from tv copy he took a bunch of those yesterday that only look worse when you pull up the all 22 to find out what was happening with the receivers and all that kind of thing like there is a degree to which you know, there are coverage sacks at times, but even, you know, good quarterbacks tend not to take coverage sacks. They find a way out of the play, even if it's just throwing the ball away at the time. Like, Fields is taking some truly terrible sacks that only look worse when you see there are open receivers, not just at the time he gets sacked, but, like, early in the play, 
that he's ignoring and passing up. And you're like, you reach the point of asking, like, what are you doing at the moment? Like, wh- what is happening on this play? Yeah, not not to cite JT O'Sullivan again, who we cited quite a bit in the preview here, but he used people like to say, oh, you know, this guy can't read it out or whatever. JT was using the word vision a lot. And I thought there was there was one play, you've got four receivers to one side, right? When you flood the side, one side of the field with four receivers, the scheme is designed to outflank the defense. And when it's four out, you're probably going to outflank the defense. And that was one of those plays where the scheme did it, man. They, they did it. And Fields was looking to that side of the field and he waited like four seconds to get sacked yeah. on the play. I mean, there was a play where Vita Vea got pancaked to the floor, got up, didn't didn't have his bearings. He actually went the wrong way away from Fields. And all of this stuff happened while Fields held the ball and got sacked by someone else. If you just watch Vita Vea, like a million things happened to him in the and he still almost had a chance to get in on the action at the quarterback. So that stuff is extremely concerning he has opportunities to throw the ball and he's not um the one other thing we we use the word athleticism a lot and we we it, it's generally tied to running my other concern with fields this isn't just in this game but like it just kind of you see it he's not athletic in the pocket um he's not athletic as a passer right now um he's athletic moving Right when he moves out of the pocket, as soon as he his accelerations out of this world, his top end speed is incredible. But when he just needs to athletically move through progressions, keep his feet under him, the stuff that like when you watch Tom Brady, you're like, wow, he's incredible at that. Right, just you know keeping your base and looking through progressions and all that. And in Fields is kind of the opposite right now. So even when he does want to go through progressions, the footwork's just not tied to things, and it's um. It's not good. I mean, of course, there's a couple good throws in there. There's a, a bang eight, boom, for the touchdown. Um, I think the pick six, that the four-yard pick six in a comeback attempt where Shaq Barrett just kind of picks it off, to me, that's more of a great defensive play than a bad offensive play. You're throwing a screen. You always have to kind of throw it blind and trust that the defensive line is going to get sucked in. And Barrett, unbelievable play, peels off, one-hands it, and steps it in the end zone. But it's the... It's just the play-by-play, man. And, you know, taking six sacks on a day when, yeah, Todd Bowles' defense is tricky, but this wasn't immediate pressure every single time. There's a couple of those, but there was too many of these negative plays for Fields. Yeah, and I actually thought early in the game he started quite encouragingly. Like, that's almost more worrying than anything is is I thought early in the game he was throwing in rhythm. He was hitting his, his intended target. He was... Like, it looked normal. Like, he was just dropping back in rhythm, losing the pass, hitting an open guy, on to the next play. It's the fact that over the course of the game, it then devolved into this, like, what is I, – I literally don't understand what you are doing at the moment. You're, not, you're ignoring open receivers that you saw early in the game. You're finding a way to hold the ball forever. You, your pocket presence is bad, and you're just waiting until a sack arrives. Like, what are we doing here? That – I mean, this is what we said earlier. Like, Justin Fields looks like a far more raw quarterback prospect than Anthony Richardson, who's played the game of football for, like, eight minutes in total. Like, it's insane. I, I, we're starting – I think justifiably we should be starting to get concerned about Fields at this point because he's not moving forward. And if anything, we're heading in the wrong direction when it comes to this kind of stuff. This is like – 
This is headed down a Baker Mayfield path of skewing himself towards bad habits. And it's happening on a regular basis. That something needs to change to stop him doing that. Um, the other, I, I just want to paint this picture though, too. Last year, remember week six or seven, there's a Thursday night game and the, the Bears play uh, Washington and uh, score seven points. And that looked like just a rock bottom for the Bears and for Justin Fields. And within a week or two, they're beating the Patriots on Monday Night Football, and, and Fields is showing signs of life. And it was w- when he just started taking games over with his legs. And then it became, okay, that bought us some time. He is a 1,000-yard runner and out of this world as a, you know, running the ball. That's going to buy us some time yeah. as a passer. So we still, like, as we're, we're writing him off right here in week two, maybe there, there's going to be one of those games where he runs for a buck fifty and two or three scores. But, man, if this stuff doesn't improve, I don't know if the Bears care. I don't know if they care that he could be a 1,000-yard runner and run for 10 touchdowns. If the pass game stuff doesn't improve, if he doesn't stop taking five or six sacks a week, they might move on, and we might be saying, hey, look, Fields, you, you're just not effective enough in the pass game to win. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the running stuff, it does buy you time, but he's already had that time. Like, it bought him last year. The running... The running stuff bought him last year and the start of this year. Like, now you actually need to see it. It's same with the the Jalen Hurts thing worked because Jalen Hurts took a big step every single season. Running bought him time, but then eventually he had, but he had to show that step every year. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got the next year. Um, the running is going to buy Anthony Richardson time. But if he still looks the same next year as he looked now, we're going to have some discussions. Like, that's where we are with Justin Fields. The rushing bought him a lot of time. But now he actually needs to take that step forward. I've got a question for you. You know, you've become a literal meme, in fact, on the Discord for simply never watching a special teams play in the game of football. Do you even know who Jake Camarda is? Yeah, the Bucks punter. There you go. Do you know what he did in this game? Nope. <laughs> so they had a blocked field goal attempt, the Bucks. Tyreek Stevenson, I think, in fact, was the guy that blocked the field goal. And it skidded off, you know, behind everybody. Probably would have been a touchdown. Only Jake Camarda dove in there and saved the touchdown. Really nice play by him. Now, obviously, you know, not not what you want your punter doing in the general course of things. But that saved points. Punters are people, too. And in this case, he saved a touchdown. I don't remember what he he did. Something good last year, too, when we mentioned him on the podcast. (laughs) He might be the most oft-used, oft-mentioned punter in PFF NFL podcast history. Jake I mean, it's Martin. not a high yeah. bar to clear. Yeah. It's not. Don't put me on the spot like that. Did you see the special teams play? Don't ever do that. I mean, my the, my okay. default assumption is you won't have seen the special teams play because you don't. Shoot, I forgot. I, ha- I haven't checked in on the Discord. I had to go. I have a Madden code. I still have to hand out to somebody that won. Um, our next partner, AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I'm traveling right now, Sam. I need my AG1 every single day. Mm-hmm. We drink it. Every day. It's a great way to kick things off, get your nutrients, because, uh, hey, we need our nutrients at the start of the day. Look at that. We got some nice little video there showing it to you. Just mix it with your water, chug it down, and you're going to feel great, feel unstoppable, ready to take on the day like I am. All great athletes have one thing in common. They take care of their bodies. And a huge part of that starts with optimizing whole body health. A lot of them, those those top-notch athletes, Sam, they drink their AG1, and that's why... I'm a huge fan. With every daily serving, 
setting myself up for success with 75 high quality ingredients that give me the key daily nutrients and to support energy, focus, strength, and clarity, especially for a 7 a.m. podcast on no sleep. It's this micro habit that keeps me going, man. It's all AG1. They cover my nutritional basis for the day. Literally, couldn't be easier than just taking my AG1. And it's less than $3 a day. It's really good, if you ask me. Nice, effective daily habit. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash PFF. That's drinkag1.com slash PFF. Go check it out. All right, let's go. Kansas City Chiefs 17, Jacksonville Jaguars 9. Not the shootout type of game that we were expecting here, but the Chiefs pull it out. They move to one-on-one one and one. Jags fall to one and one. I think the story of the game here for me, well, first off, Travis Kelsey comes back, finds the end zone. So he comes back from his injury, four catches for 26 yards on nine targets. And uh, Patrick Mahomes looks pretty solid again, does turn it over with an interception, dropped interception in there early as well. Um, but the story for me is the Jaguars in the red zone could not score in the red zone, could not put the ball in the uh, in the end zone, in the red zone, couldn't score touchdowns. Uh, Trevor Lawrence had a whole bunch of, a lot of near misses, Sam. A lot of yeah. pass gets there, one foot in, really tight window throws. I think the Chiefs defense deserves a ton of credit, but this one, two things, right? It was the game where the Chiefs just decide they're going to turn it over in every which way they can. Again. Um, much like, Again, much like Thursday night, much like last year's regular season game against Jacksonville. And the Jags unable to capitalize because they just could not put the ball in the end zone with all those opportunities. Yeah, including right at the death. I mean, they, you know, ball right at the back of the end zone to um, Calvin Ridley, whose day seemed to be like all of those plays. Calvin Ridley yeah. had something like seven, yeah, seven targets, two catches, but like almost all of the incompletions were like razor thin, almost got it, almost had it, almost got the foot down, almost didn't step out of bounds. Like the whole game was like that, and that kind of ended up being the difference. Yeah, like so Travis Kelsey came back, but I thought clearly did not really look like Travis Kelsey yet. Um, he had nine targets, four catches for 26 yards, one of which was the touchdown, but – there were sort of a few things. Number one, I don't think he just looked himself. But even just statistically, you could see one yard per uh, route run. He's usually two or three times that. Um, all five of his targets were contested catches, and he only caught one of them. The fact that five of them were contested tells you that he wasn't really himself because that doesn't typically happen to Travis Kelsey. But the important part was the touchdown that he scored was why – they need him on the field, even if he's not 100. Yeah, like that—that's the the telepathic connection that he has with Mahomes to find the space and be on the same page in finding the space when things start to break down is why he's so important. It's like even if he can't move, it's important having him out there because he understands where Mahomes wants to go with the ball when the play's gone to hell and he's moving and the space is, you know, it's a fluid picture that's changing constantly. Like, Kelsey knows where that's supposed to be. Nobody else they have does. Like, every other receiver on the field, Valdez, Scantling, Sky Moore, Justin Watson, Noah Gray, Kadarius Toney, none of them have that feel that Kelsey does. Not just where the space is going to be, 
but also like where Mahomes wants to go with it. Like those are two slightly different questions, and Kelsey gets both parts of it, and that. Like, honestly, it's the difference in this game. It, it literally is that score and Kelsey's understanding with uh, Mahomes. So, you know, Kelsey will get better. He'll get more healthy. We'll get, I'm sure, the ver- him back to full strength. But if he's simply out there, it makes a difference to this team. Uh, to be fair to Sky Moore, he did find the uh, open grass for a 54-yarder that pretty much sealed the deal for Kansas City when they were trying to run the clock in their four-minute drill. They had a big third and long. Um, Holmes does what he does and extends the play, finds Sky Moore for the 54-yarder. Um, really outside of that play, it was another just so-so performance, I think, by the Kansas City offense. They had barely run the ball in the first half. I think uh, their running backs had one or two carries. They did start the second second half running the ball a little bit. You were reminded that Isaiah Pacheco – is man just a hard-nosed runner uh imposing you know just punishment on the defense pacheco running hard had a 31 yarder in there but he averaged almost six yards or a carry and um, i know i say this every year but i'm not saying the chiefs need balance or any of that but getting isaiah pacheco x number of carries just to have a different body type to tackle just to say look now you're gonna have to you know face a power player basically because we're hitting you with a whole bunch of finesse. We're hitting you with a whole bunch of, you know, horizontal pass game and underneath pass game. And we, we're making you tackle in space. But at some point, you're going to have to get physical against the Chiefs. And Pacheco adds that element to it. So I always like that that balance that on any given play, you've got a battering ram type of running back like Pacheco. But also you have to, you know, face the finesse type of passing attack that Kansas City's bringing to the table. So I thought that was interesting. Um Trevor Lawrence, man, the the stat line is not great. 22 of 41 for 216, 68 passer rating. We have him, there are four passes in there that are tight window, pretty much tight window, really well thrown, that fell incomplete. So you're not going to see that big of a difference. This To me, this was really the difference in the game, right? A lot of these were in the red zone, the passes we've already talked about, but he was hitting some tight window throws. And uh, Zay Jones back of the end zone, Calvin Ridley on fourth down that you mentioned, just not getting the benefit of those yeah. plays. The Jags need to make those plays, man, especially if they're trying to knock off the best team in the AFC. Yeah, I, so you're right. That any one of those literally changes the outcome of the game potentially. Um, but I, I think because the Chiefs receivers were still kind of letting them down a little bit, you know, catch fumble type of play. Um, I, I think that part evened it out, but the difference was like Kansas City got two of their three best players back on the field in this game. They got Travis Kelsey and they got Chris Jones. We already talked about what Kelsey brings to the table and what he added to this team. The other side of that is Chris Jones showed up. I mean, he was one of their best players on defense, period. But like all, you know, genuinely great defenders, he also showed up like in the right moments. I mean, Chris Jones got a sack on a fourth down at midfield at one point in the game. Just perfect timing, big play, ends the drive. He also got, I think it was a hit, not a sack, but like third and long. Third down. Yeah. It was exactly what I predicted on the preview show, Sam. Remember, I said, hey, he'll line up out wide against right tackle rookie Anton Harrison. Keep an eye on the matchup. Pull up the audio. Just go get the audio somewhere. But he, you know, he he gets the quick win against the rookie in crunch time. Sorry to steal your thunder, but yeah, I needed to make that point that I predicted one thing right. 
No, absolutely. Take your victory lap. So, you know, third Thank and you. long. Third, fourth and four and third and long are two of, his, two of his most important plays in the game, two of his biggest wins in the game. That changes the outcome of the game. I mean, that's, that's two drives that got stopped because Chris Jones took over, the same way we've seen, you know, in key games in the playoffs uh, in the past. So two of their best three players, with the other one being Mahomes, who's just at this level of, you know, absurd at all times seemingly, came into this game and made discernible, tangible differences to the outcome. Like that, honestly, was the biggest story is that for as much as we can talk about how good Kansas City's roster is top to bottom, I mean, we, this is a great case study of how two guys can change the outcome of the game. Uh, the Chiefs offensive line, we'll talk about, I want to talk about Juwan Taylor. There's a request in the chat to discuss Juwan Taylor, five penalties yesterday. Um, but the Chiefs offensive line from a pass pro standpoint, outstanding once again, much like they were in the playoff game when Mahomes had one leg. Uh, Jags pass rush, man. I've said this throughout the offseason. If Josh Allen isn't having a six or seven pressure day, I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know what's happening. And, and, and Allen's not the type of guy where he's really, really consistent week to week. He does have six and seven pressure games, and then he has your two pressure game. There's nothing from Trayvon Walker still. There's just not enough from a Jags perspective, especially against this one of the better pass-protecting offensive lines in the league. Um, I don't know how much we've actually discussed the whole tackle jumping. It looks like the the tackle false start deal. I mean, I don't want to spend an hour on it because the, uh, the old line people love discussing this, but <laughs> a week after Jawan Taylor looks like he's false starting and everyone's pulling it out. I mean, he's really just moving right at the snap. But it's harder to do on the road, and you know he's picking up all sorts of penalties here in this game. But those aren't really false starts, Sam. When uh, in this game they were, but generally they're moving right at the ball. It looks like the right tackle or the left tackle is leaving early. Just an interesting thing that a lot of tackles are doing around the league. Yeah. So number one, it's not just Juwan Taylor. Um, number right. two, there was also there's three separate elements to sort of how he is pushing the boundaries and the third part of this is by the way the nfl basically came out and said we're going to pay attention to this this week like what happened in on opening night was a farce like it was clearly the lines have been too put the envelope has been pushed too far and we're actually going to push back at this because it is ridiculous now all the offensive line guys you know duke and all those guys have been pushing back saying this has been happening for years, and, and it's not, you know, this is just where we are. Like, yeah, but at some point, we go too far, and we actually do need to correct, right? Like, it's like the re-emphasis of the rules that happens every now and again. It's, yeah, you can, you can push the boundary and push the boundary and push the boundary and take an inch and an inch and an inch, and at some point, you go, hang on. <laughs> like, look where we started and look where we are now. We need to go back. We need to make a change. That's what the officials have done off the back of opening night. And had that game not been, you know, an island game, everybody's watching, probably wouldn't have happened. But that's the reality of how the world works is when you're exposed to the sunlight on the biggest stage, that's when you get a reaction. So there's three different ways he's taking the piss, frankly. Number one, stance. Like he's so far off the line of scrimmage. His helmet theoretically is supposed to intersect with the waistline like the, the belt line of the center. And it doesn't have to, like, just the Venn diagram. They just need to cross over slightly. So he can be quite a long way back from the line of scrimmage and still be good. He, having said that on opening night, was clearly too far back almost all the time. Uh, number two, he is one of these guys, Lane Johnson is another, and I'm sure there's a few of the other ones out there as well, who 
so to do this thing where they they're constantly resetting like their back foot before the snap, like getting it comfortable, almost like a sort of twitch mechanism so that they're ready to spring back off the line as soon as the snap comes. So whereas a lot of other positions, you got to get into your stance and then not move for a period of time before the snap, officials are kind of giving these guys that leeway to mess with that back foot almost right up until the snap. And then the third point is that, is he actually setting off before the ball is snapped? And on most occasions... He actually isn't. He's just timing it perfectly. But you add those three things together and it looks really bad. You know, it's, it's the fact that the other two are coming into play along with the perfect timing of the snap. But there was also a play or two here or there where he was jumping early in addition to early. three yeah. things, right? So one yeah. of the things I, off the back of this is, yeah, he had a ton of penalties. I think only one of them was false start, though. Like, it, you know, it was the fact that I think he's sort of – was prepared for the backlash and maybe mess with his uh, setup a little bit. But, you know, overall, I think it was just a thing that offensive linemen have been collectively pushing the boundaries of for a while. The officials are apparently trying to crack down on it, and it's probably a good thing. Well, well said, Sam. Chiefs 17 to 9. Look, the Chiefs' defense has given up 23 points yeah. in two games. Just something to keep an eye on. The Lions only scored 14 offensive points week one. Nine against the Jags. Of course, it takes uh, winning in the red zone, whether that's the Jags' fault, whether that's the Chiefs cracking down. Either way, every year we say this, if the Chiefs end up having a average to high-end defense, especially while their offense is kind of finding their way right now and turning it over, Kansas City is – they're still the best team in the NFL, but they're, you know, a little bit more dangerous if they can uh, – you know, take a team like the Jags who have explosive ability that we saw in week one and hold them to nine points. Pretty impressive by Kansas City and Spags, of course. Spags. Left tackle Donovan Smith ended up with the ball in his hands on multiple occasions in this game. That's probably not great. <laughs> I mean, it's Andy Reid. You never know. That could be part of the game plan. Yeah, not by design, though. One of them was Mahomes found what he thought was an open receiver and it turned out to be his left tackle. Uh, and then another one, I think he just fell on a fumble. But in an ideal world, I think they would rather Donovan Smith didn't possess the ball on multiple occasions. All right, let's go. Uh, Seattle 37, Detroit 31. Final in overtime for the Seattle Seahawks. Both teams now 1-1. One and one. Uh, It looked a lot like last year's game. Bit of a shootout. Both quarterbacks played really well. Uh, you saw Geno Smith really, man, just a really good game from him again where we said, hey, last week last week wasn't great, but he had a bit of a roller coaster ride last year, and he you know got back up and, and played well. Tyler Lockett with a huge game uh, in you know finding the end zone twice for Seattle, but Detroit's offense, similar. Jared Goff played really well mm-hmm. outside of one pass, which turned into you know the first interception he had thrown in what 300 something passes. It's a pick six by Trey Brown. That ends up being a huge part of the game, of course, because it went to overtime. Um, but I don't think this was Goff. I mean, I think both both offensive lines played really well. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just a really good offensive showing from both teams, and Seattle wins the shootout. Yeah, which is a big result for them, given you know what happened week one, how bad that looked, uh, and the expectations for Seattle heading into the season. If they had fallen to 0-2, even with an improved performance this week, that would have been pretty concerning. Um, but they didn't. Like, they bounced back. They won the game in addition to having the good performance. So big by them. Um, both 
starting tackles, now sophomore tackles were out of the game. So Stone, Forsyth, and Jake Curran were their two tackles. Uh, one held up, I think, slightly better than the other. But the fact that that offensive line didn't collapse with that situation going up against Detroit's pass rush was a big thing for them. And then the offense generally looked pretty good. I mean, all three of those top receivers that they had had a good game. Um, Geno Smith, I think, generally played really well, but had a couple of bad plays in there as well, which in a game like this probably ended up you know, being a big part of the difference. Uh even though they end up winning the game. But, like, this was a fun game. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed by Seattle's offensive line. We spent a lot of time talking about those injuries and uh, the fact that the Lions have – it's not an elite pass rush, but Aiden Hutchinson, really good. We saw that in, you know night one against Kansas City, and in this game, seven out of the 17 pressures that the team had that a player accumulated you know, came from Aiden Hutchinson – um, but I don't know, maybe I've overrated the depth that they have there with Charles Harris. And um, we, we, I don't think we've overrated uh, James Houston, but you know, he's a, he was a situational guy. He only rushed the pass for three times in this game. So yeah. you just didn't get any help besides Aiden Hutchinson. So good job by Seattle and maybe a little concerning from Detroit that they're not able to take advantage of, uh, you know, basically – uh, the late round or undrafted backup tackles who are early in their career, the Lions are unable to take advantage of that in the dome. And Geno Smith picked them apart. You know, this was not one of those games where Geno's dropping four or five big time throws. He was just hitting the open man and uh, moving the ball and playing a good, effective game, like you said, outside of those couple plays, right? Um, so I think that's a little concerning for Detroit in their defense. And um, impressive by Seattle that they took advantage and, and then also, again, took advantage with um, with the backups in there. Yeah. Um, so there was a play in this game that where there was offsetting, penal- offsetting pass interference penalties, essentially, on um, DK Metcalf versus uh, Joseph in the end zone. And this felt like just a bad... I think it didn't feel like it was proportionate to how that play worked, right? Which was all DK Metcalf executing the illegal play. Like he had a hand in his face mask, was sort of wrenching him to the side, was just generally like abusing him physically in the course of this play. And then only right at the end, after wrenched by the face mask out of the way, did Joseph reach out and kind of grab DK Metcalf just to try and not be thrown to the side. Did he have any kind of illegal contact? And that was enough for the refs to say, well, that's defensive pass interference as well. Now it's offsetting flags. Like, when a play is all one guy making the, the illegal contact right up until, like, the very end, that shouldn't be offsetting penalties. That should be offensive pass interference that maybe resulted in some illegal contact by the other guy, but only, only like, way after he was being illegally contacted himself. Like... Offsetting penalties should be designed for, you know, equal equal crimes being committed here. That's not what happened in this play. That just felt like a bad interpretation of how those rules are supposed to work. You don't get the offsetting de- uh, pass interference penalties often. It's usually it's uh, – was it DeAndre Hopkins and Jalen Ramsey or something? It's like the these two great players are going at it and they're getting physical. It's like, I just throw the flag yeah. on both of them. But you're right. It's usually somebody initiates and then that – leads to a response and um i just want to highlight the uh 
the game winner for Geno Smith in overtime. It, it's again, I don't know how concerning this is for the Lions because it looked a little bit like the opener against the Chiefs. It's Aiden Hutchinson gets the win. He gets the pressure, but there's no one else. And the quarterback, it's Geno, he avoids it. Right? I mean, that's what Mahomes kept doing on Thursday night. When there's one pressure, when there's only one guy winning or even close to the quarterback, it's not nearly as detrimental. If the, the quarterback sidesteps it, then they actually have room to run and there's just no help. I, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned about Detroit not having the pocket collapsing and just not having enough. And from a Geno Smith perspective, third and two, You've, you've got the field goal in hand. You'd have to give the ball back to Detroit, but just a beautiful play to get outside the pocket away from Aiden Hutchinson to hit Tyler Lockett, who gets in for the game winner. And um, it's a, you know, a lot easier in overtime if you just score the touchdown. Don't put the ball in your defense's hands to you know make a stop. So big win for Seattle. I do want to shout out Jared Goff. I mean, this was one of his better games, man. You take out that the pick six... He's 28 of 35 for 323. Uh, him and Josh Reynolds, just a, an outstanding connection so far here. Two two touchdowns, but Goff was uh, throwing the ball really accurately up the seam. Amonra St. Brown to Reynolds. Uh, they get they had the Khalif Raymond play on the flea, fi- uh, flea flicker, 36-yard touchdown. you got to have more Khalif Raymond plays. You always have to. Um, Jameer Gibbs watch. <laughs> Not impressive oh. right now. Seven catches for 39, seven carries for 17. So not not much there for Gibbs. But I want to shout out Goff because I think he played a really good game and him and Gino again, battling back and forth. Goff played great. Um, beautiful pass up the seam to Reynolds for a touchdown. Uh, the Gibbs thing, though, is relevant because David Montgomery got hurt in this game. Um, and Montgomery, yeah. I think, would have been running reasonably hard. But they don't have... So whatever about the dynamic of how they've been deploying Gibbs and he needs more work and all this kind of thing they're not going to give him David Montgomery's job. Like, those are two separate roles within this offense. There's the straight ahead between the tackles, bell cow type of runner, and then there's whatever it is they're trying to turn Jameer Gibbs into. But David Montgomery being down, they don't have an alternative to that guy on the roster necessarily. Craig Reynolds was the guy who's going to come in and take that job based off, you know, the rest, the remainder of this game after he went hurt. And Reynolds had, what, three attempts for seven yards. So... I don't know that Reynolds is going to be the guy that's able to do what David Montgomery does either. So that's a, a worry or a blow to Detroit coming out of this game is losing David Montgomery. Um, the other thing I had as a note in this game was the single greatest individual troll in the NFL, C.J. Gardner-Johnson, was out-trolled by the, the Seahawks. Now, number one, remember, he's always the guy drawing the idiot penalty in the game by annoying people into like punching him in the head or whatever he got flagged after a big defensive stop early in the game um i think he he made a tackle for loss on uh kenneth walker but then got up and like you know bumped him like got in his face and got the taunting flag or whatever that was it's usually the other way around that that works and then he you know made this thing about the the blue ski masks and seattle had one of those in the locker room was busy trolling him after the game so in, a, in an unusual turn-up, the master troll was, in fact, the one being trolled. A double loss for the Lions and C.J. Gardner-Johnson. Both teams 1-1 one and one here in the NFC. And, uh, yeah, it's a tough one if you're in Detroit and a much-needed one if you are in Seattle. Last of the 1 o'clock games, we've got Tennessee 27, Los Angeles Chargers 24. Another overtime win. Tennessee 
gets the win here to go to one and one. Chargers fall to zero and two. I don't want to misquote the stat, but it's something like uh, teams that have scored over twenty five points per game with no turnovers through two games have never started zero and two. Mm. But the Chargers are here. Yeah, and they have the Chargers. I are... think that's the stat. Man, what'd you make of this one? Ugh. I mean, you forget Ugh, just, sometimes. Uh... You forget sometimes that it's the Chargers. You know, you start rationally analyzing the game and working through it on a player-by-player basis or a scheme basis, and you forget that none of it matters because it's the Chargers. You know, and they're going to do what they always do, which is find a way to lose a game that they should have won comfortably. And this is what happened. Like Ryan Tannehill went from having one of the worst performances of his NFL career in week one to looking like peak, you know, Tennessee Titans Ryan Tannehill with his 90-plus grade and just being efficient and, you know, hitting a couple of nice throws here and there. That's like, this should not have happened, any of this game. Yeah, the Chargers defense is allowing 10.3 yards per attempt through two games. So every time the quarterback drops back and makes a throw, they're averaging a first down against the Chargers defense. Now, that's not including the sacks, of course. I'm just talking yards per attempt. Um, Tannehill was sacked five times. The offensive line was having some serious uh, communication problems on the left side. Right. Um, It was just ugly. He was under pressure, eight dropbacks, and they resulted in five sacks. They were almost all like instant win, blown protections or, or that kind of thing. And yet it still didn't stop the Chargers defense capitulating and you know failing to stop anything yeah the fourth and four kenneth murray's right there at the snap blown blown assignment and everything but first off i want to give credit to the titans right because you got to give credit uh Tannehill did play a nice clean game beautiful 70 yard pass to Traylon burks hit him in stride hit chris moore for a 49 yarder i thought Tannehill. uh this was the old Tannehill, right i mean throw through the ball much better and defensively, one of the matchups that we highlighted coming into the game was the Titans' defensive line and their ability to stop the run because the Chargers had the most effective run game in the NFL in Week 1. Now, Austin Eckler does not play mm. in this game, and I'm sure that's a factor, but uh, Tennessee wins up front for the second straight week, not necessarily from a pass rush standpoint, but just run defense and making the Chargers more one-dimensional. And so, you know, that was... So that's the old school Titans that we've seen under Mike Vrabel, right? Just kind of win the the phone booth battles and, you know, win some of those small battles that added up and you've got a 27-24 overtime win. Yeah, um, they really did. Like, uh, there were a couple of weird things in this game. At one point, I think generally speaking, the Chargers offense is fine. The the Justin Herbert, Kellen Moore connection, I think it's probably working in the right in the right direction the fact that austin eckler wasn't playing is a big blow not just for the for what he could do on the ground but as a receiver as well it's a big loss to that offense uh as much as maybe any running back in the nfl and you know this is the reason that the man wanted more money in the offseason um this would be a good game to highlight in his personal plea for more money to the chargers but at one point they dialed up mike williams in a jet sweep so what now there have been a surprisingly high number of Mike Williams. It works, didn't it? I mean, well. a little bit. But I wouldn't like, do it just because I don't. I want him to not get tackled ever. 
There have been because he's right because of the injuries. There have been a surprisingly large number of wide receiver Mike Williamses in NFL history, and not a single one of them belongs on a jet sweep. Like, if you think of all the Mike Williams that have played wide receiver in the NFL, none of them are the type of receiver that, that is, is well-suited to having a jet sweep carry, including this one, who is best Rest suited vertically. Rest in peace vertically. to the Bucks, Mike Williams. Right, absolutely. Um, who is suited to being a vertical threat deep down the field and is not, you know, a short area uh, ball in his hand type of receiver. So that was a bizarre play call in this offense and a bizarre deployment of their talent, which is starting to look like a little bit of a trend with those receivers. I mean, Mike Williams on in this game, uh, Quentin Johnston in week one was being deployed in some weird ways. Then there's also um, Josh Palmer had an absolutely ridiculous catch in the back of the end zone where kind of looked like he got both feet down and they didn't give it to him because this field doesn't have the the black uh, pellets that pop up, you know, when you drag your toe, this one doesn't have grass. that. It's grass. We're right. going to lose that when the, when the Players Association wins out and it's only grass. There you go. This one didn't have the concrete evidence that his second toe dragged, although it looked like it did from the replay. And one of the best catches of the season did not get credited to the man. Yeah. I, this is why I, I hate the Chargers. <laughs> because... A lot of my analysis, I, I like the things they're doing. I mean, I don't like them getting beaten for 70-yard touchdowns. I don't like the fact that Khalil Mack can't rush the passer anymore and maybe he's lost it. I don't like that. I think the Kellen Moore-Herbert thing is is fascinating right now. I mean, they have uh, Keenan Allen. There was a beautiful cover two shot to Keenan Allen where they used Quentin Johnston to clear out the safety. They used Quentin Johnston's speed. We wanted them to add speed. They're using him as a speed clear out. He's not, you know, tearing up the stat sheet or anything like that. Had one catch for two yards. But you see the safety drawn, and Keenan Allen's creating big plays up the sideline. Herbert's averaging over 10 uh, yards per target, right? The complete opposite of what he had been before. To me, I think the Chargers are close, right? I mean, they, they scored a ton of points last week, and it's really the defense that's the concern. I think this Chargers offense is legit and they're going to be good and they didn't have Eckler and they didn't you know win the trench battle but this passing game is going to be explosive as long as Keenan Allen Mike Williams Quentin Johnston Josh Palmer if those guys stay out there the tight ends they're going to be explosive and so I'm not concerned about that side of the ball like I am just extremely concerned by the Chargers not being good defensively under Brandon Staley yeah I mean the other you said there's weird stuff in this game they they got up you know, two scores, go for two. They get up 11 nothing. Uh, once again, how do they do that? Brandon Staley goes for it on fourth and four, up 3 nothing early in the game. And they scored, that was after the Palmer non-touchdown, and then Herbert makes a great throw for a touchdown. I mean, again, I'm not trying to, like, compliment Staley. I think the game management part of it is fine. I'm concerned about the defense. How is the defense that bad and giving up 10 yards per attempt? I know it was the Dolphins week one. But this is a Titans. This is the Titans passing attack that should not be that explosive, and they're letting them be that explosive. I think that's concerning for the Chargers and for the Titans. This was the same type of game that they win, right? Like Derek, they have way more carries than dropbacks, and Tannehill just goes twenty for twenty-four and hits, you know, hits a couple passes and takes care of it. And at the end of the day, the Titans find a way to win. 
Yeah, I mean, Kevin Clark, who formerly of The Ringer now does a podcast with Omaha and ESPN, he tweeted after the game, um, so let's say someone in charge asks Brandon Staley why he should keep his job. What is his best argument? And I think that pretty much sums it up at this point. Like, you're a defensive coach that's been brought on for your expertise in a system that is thriving throughout the NFL. Like, forget, it's not like your system is just... It's run its course, and it's being found out. Like, the system's actually working everywhere else. And you've got some talent, and the defensive side of the ball is just crapping itself every game. What do you do here? Like, what, what do you – and we just hired an offensive mind to fix that side, and that actually seems like it's working. So our multi-million dollar quarterback and his new offensive coach seem to be going in the right direction, and your defense continues to just collapse every week. What do you bring into the table? Two, two things there. When um, our friend Zach Robinson was uh, one of the finalists for the Chargers offensive coordinator job, and then Kellen Moore came free from the Cowboys and, and gets the job because he's got some experience and he's had some success with with Dallas. And in the back of my head, I was like, well, you know, Staley's on the hot seat here. You know, Kellen Moore might be the head coach of the Chargers a year from now. You know, it's early. They're 0-2, but that's the type of stuff we're talking about right now. Kellen Moore might be taken over for the Chargers. Who knows? But the answer to the Staley thing that, that makes it worse is when you look at the front office and say, okay, what did we give you? Now, maybe they got gave him a uh, rundown version of Khalil Mack. You know, maybe he is at the, the wrong side of, of his career. But you have player number three, who's supposed to be the perfect, movable chess piece for any defensive mastermind. You have... Uh, one of the highest paid corners in the league, J.C. Jackson. Right or wrong, you know, they they have second-round pick Asante Samuel, first-round pick Kenneth Murray, Eric Kendricks, who was hurt. But they've had a lot of pieces here, which is why we always get excited, because the on-paper looks good for the Chargers every year. And, and, yeah, Staley's not finding a way to to make all those pieces fit defensively right now. It's also, by the way, I mean, that's an open debate, right? How much of it is personnel moves have been bad like maybe maybe this oh kenneth murray hasn't played well in the nfl uh, Asante samuel jr hasn't necessarily become the player we expected him to be jc jackson been a disaster so far like how much of that is consistently the personnel moves have actually just been mistakes and how much of it is actually those guys there's the basis of a really good defense here if the defensive coach made it work like we're in this debate now and this is the conversation that Chargers brass is probably having, like, do we actually have a top 10 defense if we just change the coach tomorrow? Because this group, we thought, you know, first-round talent linebacker, second-round talent cornerback, one of the best ball hawk cornerbacks in the NFL in the last several years, you know, there's you start going through the list, you're like, this group should be good, and it isn't. Like, is this a coaching problem? Yeah, that's why, again, I think Herbert – there's a couple downfield shots that Herbert takes where I don't think he's reading the field well and he's just kind of chucking it up. And I don't love that. He might be better at actually working the underneath game and that's why he's settled into the style that he has. But I do think over time, we're going to look back at Herbert's stats and production this year and say, okay, the Kellen Moore experiment worked. We're going to look at the Chargers offense and say that worked. It, it really might be Kellen Moore's team at the end of the year, and then he's going to bring in, as you just said, maybe a defensive coordinator to to right the ship. It's early. It's only two games in, but 0-2. Oh um, some reporter brought up the Jacksonville game. Brandon Staley was not pleased. Brought up the uh, the 
playoff collapse and uh, not great at the press conference. All right, so credit to Tennessee, 27-24 win. They moved to a one and one in the AFC South. Let's go to the four o'clock games. Let's go Dallas 30, New York Jets 10. I believe this was kind of the expected outcome. Zach Wilson had his struggles outside of that one 68-yard pass to Garrett Wilson, which was beautiful. Other than that, complete domination from Dallas defensively, complete domination from Micah Parsons, one of the best games you'll see from any defensive player rushing the passer, sacks, forced fumbles. He had the forced fumble on a run and picked it up. Yeah, man, Micah is unstoppable. Yeah, I mean, there's one of a number of defenders that are sort of pushing for that defensive player of the year thing. And, I mean, Parsons is absolutely one of them. But it's we're in this, you know, they were talking like, don't put a cap on it. Don't say defensive player of the year, like MVP and all this kind of stuff, right? Now, look, it was Tony Romo on the broadcast. So, yeah, Michael Parsons was going to be talked about in a very good light. Um, but we're, it's a weird time where there's like five, probably, defensive players that could all be, be talking about as like the best player in the NFL at any position. Um, and Parsons was just an absolute domination display in this game. I mean, the run game, the one-on-one wins as a pass rusher, he's so good at winning one-on-one that it almost feels like cheating to deploy him as part of a stunt as well. Like you have a <laughs> stunts that sort of cross the, the end and the tackle are literally designed to make life easier for those guys rushing the passer. It's not like Micah Parsons needs his life to be made easier. He's already winning so easily one-on-one. Um, I don't even think Zach Wilson was particularly bad in this game. Two of those uh, turnovers, the interceptions, came late in the game when he was already like yeah. way behind the eight ball. I mean, look, the way you heard Peyton Manning talking about him on the Manning cast when he went in, the way you heard Tony Romo talking about him in this game, clearly Zach Wilson is a quarterback who needs to be in front of the chains most of the time, right? In, in a good game script situation. If the game is getting away from the Jets, he's in trouble. And that's what happened in this game. Like, the eventually the Jets got into a big enough hole, and at that point you can pretty much write it off. Zach Wilson is not bringing you back, and in fact it's probably going to make it worse. But I don't think he was necessarily terrible for the first, you know, two, three quarters of the game. No, I agree. I mean, if if the Jets were going to have a chance, you'd have to look at their running backs. This is one of the few times, Sam, where I would encourage a team to actually run it more and maybe even try run, run, pass. You know, try it and uh, over and over again and hope that Brees Hall breaks a big one. I Unfortunately, hate to say it, I don't see Dalvin Cook breaking the big ones anymore. He looks much slower. Um, he had the fumble, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Mike Parsons forced and recovered, that it feels like if Brees Hall can break a 50-yarder, the they have a shot here with Zach Wilson. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, okay, he'll hit this rhythm, play-action pass, Garrett Wilson will make a guy miss and go for 68. We need two or three of those a game. We need a couple of the... We need. It's kind of how I described it, I think, in the preview. If Zach Wilson can have a bunch of boots and a bunch of screens and a bunch of mindless type of plays and only make him actually have to read it out eight to ten times a game, maybe you can manage because then you only need a few good throws out of him. It's just such a fine line to make that all work, and it's not going to happen against this Dallas defense who did not allow the run game to do anything 
And also, the Jets' offensive line is bad. Like, I'm curious if Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback here. We might be talking about 10 points for the Jets, the way that offensive line cannot block Demarcus Lawrence, cannot block Micah Parsons. I don't know who's doing anything against this Dallas defense right now. Yeah, so that's the thing, right? I thought both defenses actually played pretty well. Um, But every other element favored Dallas. Like, when you look at the other side of the ball – on either side, like the Jets' offensive line simply doesn't function. Dallas's offensive line isn't bad. Um, Dak Prescott opened the game for ten for ten. They were having some joy in terms of offense. Zach Wilson couldn't really function that well, and the Jets couldn't run the ball because their offensive line is bad. So everything favored Dallas. And then when you start adding that on top of you know when it was close, some some calls went Dallas's way as well, right? Like there was an egregious. Uh, roughing the passer call on Dak Prescott. Um, the Jets were off the field on that play. Like, that was a, a win. They were going to get off the field. John Franklin Myers gets through, hits him in the waist. Like, this yeah. idea of where where's the target area supposed to be for a quarterback? Can't hit him below the knees. Can't hit him above the shoulder. Got to hit him in this trunk area. He makes contact in the waist and then slides down in the course of the tackle and, you know, wraps the legs. It's like textbook technique. And they're like, well, he ended up around his ankles, therefore he must have gone low, throw the flag. So that ends up being a score in a, in a, in a play on a drive where the Jets' defense held, you know, down by the goal line, a tough situation, got themselves off the field. Um, and they, there was another penalty, I think, on that drive before Dallas eventually punches it in. A but pass interference, I think, on third down. Yeah, I mean, that's where the the football fan in me wants to see a close game. And when you know a team like the Jets are overmatched, and I'm kind of rooting for just, you know, the the drama and the closer game, those are those are tough ones, right? Those are tough. And if you're a Jets fan, you're watching this game like, man, we don't have – we're hanging tough against what looks like a juggernaut here in Dallas, and we can just hold them to a field goal. And they do it, but yeah. there's the two penalties that, that – those could be frustrating. But, you know, that offensive line for the Jets does look like a massive worry. I mean, Dwayne Brown looks – spent at left tackle now look he's going up against some elite pass rushers at the moment but he looks like he's done which makes sense given that he's given his age i mean what is he 30 38 um he was born in he was born he was uh drafted in 2008 yeah so. so he's you know i mean it makes sense for him to be pretty much done at this point but you're right like it's it's all the focus is going to be on zach wilson because he's the quarterback and he's the guy being tasked with <laughs> making the playoffs so that Aaron Rodgers can come back in like six weeks from his busted Achilles. Um, but I I don't know that he has a chance with this offensive line the way it's playing. Uh, Dak Prescott played a good, efficient game. Uh, the uh, EPA was high at one point. He did get away with a pick six, so I had to tweet out, there should have been a pick six in there. He throws one to Sauce Gardner, yeah. who had, what, like 50 yards of green right in front of him if he caught it that would have affected the epa that's why i would have made that point (laughs) yeah he was a weird play he like he wanted to go there the whole way and and hesitated sort of talked himself out of it initially and then went back to it anyway and that's like you can't i mean late to the flat is the cardinal quarterback sin can't do that Uh, so you can't can't like hesitate then throw the same pass you wanted to throw in the first place that just gave sauce gardner a read on it and he should have caught it um, so that's the the only real egregious mistake from Dak. He was really good spreading the ball around. C.D. Lamb, fantastic. Seven first downs through the air. 
Uh, really nice double move. That was Dak's probably his best throw of the day on a double move down the field. They did a nice job scheming C.D. Lamb up as well. Uh, Brandon Cooks was hurt in this game, so you saw a little bit more Jalen Tolbert. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he drew one of those pass interferences down the field. Um, so, yeah, it was – Dallas played the game that Buffalo should have played, Sam. Yeah. Right? Dallas played the game, uh, not taking anything away from the Jets, but the Jets should be 0-2 if – if Dallas played the game where they just they ran the ball, they threw it underneath, uh, they didn't turn it over, right? You know, Dak just Dak gets away with that one pass that would have, you know, yeah, kept the Jets in it. But uh, just don't screw it up when you're facing Zach Wilson's Jets right now. Unfortunately, that's the that's the name of the game. Dallas did it and um, cannot rave about Micah Parsons enough. When you talk about the best defensive player. I mean, we're going to see Miles Garrett play tonight, and I thought week one Garrett was outstanding, right? I think Garrett's right there. Micah Parsons is right there. Nick Bosa, TJ Watt. I mean, all those guys. But I think at the end of the day, you might be talking about Micah Parsons as as the dude, right? Week Year three, and he has been unstoppable when Dallas wants him to be unleashed and and be unstoppable. And this is, this is one of those games where you, where you saw that. Yeah. I mean, he's, as I say, there's probably five guys that have a best player in football, defensive player of the year, candidacy. That's a, a credible claim. And Michael Parsons is one of them. The fourth fumble on Dalvin Cook. I mean, he just ran in, just ripped the ball away from him and was only, was unfortunate that his knee was in contact with Cook when he was on the ground recovering it, or it's a touchdown as well. You know, he got up and housed it, um, just didn't didn't get credited for it. He's he's insane right now. All right, let's go. San Francisco 49ers 30, Los Angeles Rams 23. The Rams kick a late field goal to cover. What, Sam? What's going on? The betters want, <laughs> the DJs want Sean McVay investigated over that. <laughs> ridiculous he's uh, like i'm gonna well if we kick the field goal fast enough we'll be able to get the onside kick and then throw it like no no it was only like when there were four seconds on the clock like it was yes of course was that's going just, to be, the was, game's over yeah there was it wasn't even a situation where you're like nah there'll be like a second left and they'll get the ball back and you know have a chance for a hell whatever like no that was ending the game unquestionably one of those when i was in college i think it was you know it was one of those monday night games when al was doing the game and a team lines up for a field goal when they absolutely should have been throwing a Hail Mary or something. And right. I was like, uh, this is an interesting decision here to take the three. I mean, uh, I mean, look, we, anyway, we joke around about it, but this is like a serious thing that this whole gambling world and the NFL being yeah. in bed with it opens up. I mean, there was a reason the NFL for decades wanted to stay as far as humanly possible away from any gambling reference, let alone connection because this kind of stuff is going to show up and everybody who has bet money on this game is going to go, what the hell is this? This makes yeah. no sense to, in terms of winning and losing this game. The only thing this does is impact a bunch of people that bet money on it in one direction or the other. At the very minimum, that's a question that's going to get asked. So other than that, it was a pretty fun game. Uh, the Rams hung tough. And look, week one, we saw the Rams win. It took... It took an otherworldly performance by Matthew Stafford, right? That we always, I, I always rave about the couple times a year, Matthew Stafford hitting tight window throws. And I, I, I wonder if that's just what the, what the Rams are going to be this year. I mean, we'll talk about Puka Nakua in a minute, setting the rookie record or the record for most catches yeah. uh, by a rookie in a game and also by a, 
player in his first two games, but it's like Matthew Stafford. It's like a Detroit Matthew Stafford team, isn't it, Sam? Like, if he plays superhuman, they're tough. And he did for the first half plus, yeah. right? I was raving about him on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. And then um, has an interception in the comeback attempt and you know things fall apart a little bit. But I think that's the Rams. You know, they were always going to be the underdog here. And um, Stafford, just he just can't play at that level all the time. And on the other side, this was the, the Debo Samuel game. Last week, it was Brandon Ayuk and Christian McCaffrey. This week, McCaffrey has his 116 yards on the ground, including a 51-yarder. Debo Samuel, it was his time to shine as the do-it-all playmaker. You never know who it's going to be every week for the Niners. Yeah, I mean, remember last week, the takeaway coming out of that 49ers-Steelers game, for me at least, was I was way too low on San Francisco going into the season. They are, for real, they are where everybody else had them in terms of penciling back in for the NFC title game. They're a contender again. It It's sort of TBD what that means for Pittsburgh, but, like, the 49ers are legit. The fact that the Rams were able to hang as close as they were in this game, which, yeah, seven points is probably fair in terms – it was a one-score game to the Ram, or to the 49ers. And the 49ers had to pull out, you know, quite a few significant plays and key moments for that to be the case, right? Like, just before the half, they didn't settle for a field goal. They went for a touchdown, sneaked it in – got a score on the board. That's a big play. Isaiah Oliver had multiple really key plays in this game. Knifed into the backfield on fourth and one to basically end it, you know, late on before the Rams got their consolation score. But, like, it took a bunch of really important key plays for, for the 49ers to get a one-score win against this Rams team. So, again, my, my takeaway is kind of, I mean, the 49ers are legit, but this is an impressive game for the Rams to run them as close as they were over the course of 60 minutes. Yeah. Also, in a, in a, uh, they were, they were rushing pretty well. They were, you know, they were, uh, handling the Rams offensive line that we've had question marks about. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm impressed by the Rams keeping things close, but the Niners do feel like that team that is just, they're just too good. Brock Purdy did the distributing thing. Again, I don't think the grade's going to be great. He just gets the ball, throw it up to Juwan Jennings for a big play. Um, it, the Niners are so good, you're not going to be able to judge their playmakers by their stats, I don't think, at the end of the year. Because, like, George Kittle might not have that many catches this year. Yeah. But, one, you know, one week, he'll he'll have 10 or 12. And every single week, it'll be someone new who's difficult to cover or the game plan makes sense or is going to run the ball like Debo or whatever it might be. And um, that's the Niners right now, plus a a, a very good defense. But... I got to hand it to Stafford for for carrying the Rams this far. Puka Nakua stepping up in the Cooper Cup role. Tutu Atwell looking far more useful than he did in his his first couple of years. The Rams are going to be at least fun here. Yeah, and the other th- the other important part of that is you know we've said for years this Rams offense basically goes as the offensive line goes. Um, and in Week One, their offensive line played really well. And if you're looking at that, you're like, see, fits the fits the template perfectly. This week, the offensive line actually kind of got its ass kicked. They only gave up one sack, but they gave up a ton of pressure. All five starters on the group might end up with a – in fact, six if you add the fact that they, they had guards, uh, two guys split time at, at one of the guard positions. So all six members of the offensive line could end up with a pass-blocking grade in the 30s. I mean, if you were told that heading into any Rams game, you would be like, offense gets nothing done they get blown out um, lions i'm telling you it's the lions 
Stafford type of team right now. But yeah. like young and fun. Right. It, but instead, they actually did have success. Stafford looked fantastic. The receivers did make some plays. They're, even their run game um, made a couple plays. Like they got some stuff done despite that offensive line against the 49ers, who we know are really good. So I it didn't it wasn't enough, but I came out of this game more encouraged by the Rams again, you know, two weeks in a row than I was anything else. We should try to go see them next Monday night in person. We should do that. Let's do it. Um, yeah, I'm with you too. But uh, Niners move to 2-0 and here, 30-23 to win over the Rams. We've got a lot of people in you, on YouTube here. Appreciate you joining us live on a Monday morning. Join us every week live on a Monday. Did you see the – Hit that thumb. I'm trying to tell people to smash the thumbs up here, Sam. Don't interrupt. People don't. When I'm telling people the thumbs up is not matching the people in the chat, so we'd appreciate if you do that. Now you can go. Sorry. You just you need a better stick. People don't respond to being told to th- smash the thumbs up button. Apparently, they don't do it. What you would need, you say? What I would you know. say to them right now? You need a better stick. I'm I'm not. I don't have one for you. I'm telling you, you just need a better one. Um, okay. Did you see George Kittle accidentally like kneeing the ball to McCaffrey and turning? What wasn't supposed to be one into a direct running back snap. Did not see that play. He was like Kittle was in motion before the snap and the timing got screwed up. So the ball got snapped and he just like kneed it on the way by. So McCaffrey was offset to the left. The ball ends up just getting kneed into his hands. It's like, uh oh, just has to run forward for a couple of yards. But that, I mean, that could have been catastrophic. Ends up bouncing in their direction. Um, Brock Purdy also had a couple of uh, – they reminded me a bit of Jimmy Garoppolo's Super Bowl. Remember, like, the deep pass just too far out of the reach, and that's the game? Like, Purdy had a oh, couple had of IU, deep targets. Oh, you got one, right? Yeah, he had a couple of deep targets that he overthrew, either one of which, I mean, could have been a big problem in this game. Uh, ends up like it didn't matter, but that, but that was a blow. What about – so there's multiple records that Puka Nakua has now set. Yeah, so it's most catches through two games. Yep. And yep. then 15 catches in one game, uh, rookie record, I believe, right? Right. And he was the o- he's the only receiver in NFL history to start their career with at least 10 receptions in was it, it's 10 receptions in their first two games. Uh, Schefter had a tweet that he's the first player in NFL history with at least 10 receptions and 100 receiving yards in each of his first two games. And the fifth player in NFL history – with at least 10 catches and 100 yards in each of his team's first two games of a season, joining, this is an interesting list, Miles Austin, 2010, Isaac Bruce in 1998, Cooper Cup in 2022, and Andre Bad Moon Risen in 1994. It's a pretty good list to be on. Fascinating list there. Um, who was it? Well, Puka, uh, I was trying to think of something. Uh, Puka was... oh. The first one you said, Miles Austin. I mean, he was mm. he was really good for a period of time. Yeah, for Dallas. Um, Puka was on my sleeper list back in our receiver rankings. Right, Sam, remember that? Yeah, you gotta yeah. pull up that graphic. You gotta pull up that graphic. Um, all right, let's go. Giants thirty-one, Arizona Cardinals twenty-eight. Look, I I want to apologize to Giants fans. What? I mean, not like. Not, I'm not like apologizing for season takes or anything, but I, I've been a little negative on Twitter because they were, they were looking pretty bad. There was a point where if you just take their last two and a half quarters, they were outscored something like ninety-five to seven. <laughs> Hadn't scored for the first six quarters of 2023. Yeah, 
but they did. They did come back. Daniel Jones breaks off a big run. Saquon Barkley finds the end zone a couple times. We got Jalen Hyatt picking up the you know fifty-eight yarder and another thirty yard. I mean, he's picking up big plays here. So the Giants found some life here after it looked disastrous. The Cardinals, with the worst roster in the NFL, get up big. Twenty-eight was it? Twenty-eight to seven at one point. Yeah, yeah. twenty-eight to seven. But the Giants come back. And uh, maybe salvage their season, Sam. So at least uh, impressive comeback for the Giants and uh, the Cardinals. Well done. Looking feisty, looking tough, but uh, maintaining that zero and two record, and you know that the draft pick maintaining that zero and two record. Yeah, twenty eight to seven, and then thirty one twenty eight as the result. Like this was, <clears throat> this was as stark a, a a game of two halves as you're going to see. First half looked like. The Dallas game for the Giants, like they couldn't get anything done. They were getting wrecked on defense. They couldn't get anything going on offense. Um, Daniel Jones has a pass that hits his receiver that's dropped, ends up as an interception. Just everything was turning to crap for the Giants. It was the first time, you know, you get these records, and most of the time it's like since 2006 or whatever. First time since 1934 that the Giants opened the season with six straight quarters without scoring. 34 that's pre-world war ii like that's insane um and that was was in the the great depression hit their offense right and yeah hard apparently um so the first like two quarters you're like wow are the giants actually the worst team in the nfl this is unbelievably terrible um and then the start of the second half they like I don't know if it's halftime adjustments or they just snapped themselves out of the funk, but things changed. Uh, number one, their offense, you know, sparked some life. Um, they hit the, the deep bomb to, to Hyatt, Jalen Hyatt, to open the, the third quarter. They get a touchdown. Um, Daniel Jones starts to get into a rhythm and actually starts making some passes, some nice uh, throws out there. Darius Slayton, I thought, should have had a touchdown. In, in in the second half, that play where he tracked it incredibly well, like over his shoulder, and is sort of leaning out of bounds as he grabs the ball. He only got one foot in, right? But doesn't a shin equal a knee, which equals two feet? Yeah, the shin thing, I, I saw people asking about that. I mean, the shin should work, just like a wrist. Yes. A wrist works like an elbow. Anything but a foot, right? basically, is two, knee, is two feet. Yes. The shin should work. And it's always a – you don't always get that, though, yeah. right? But, like, it should. The shin equals, like, a knee, which is two feet down. That and should they, be I don't think they challenged that, right, either. That that should have been looked at, and that should have been a touchdown, I think. But anyway, they, they, they got it together in the second half. Daniel Jones made some beautiful passes like that down the field. He also hit a lot of throws over the middle that were impressive. Um, and then maybe the, the other element is – I mean, the Cardinals' offense stalled. They didn't score in the second half. And honestly, one score, they win the game. Yeah, it's one of those games where if it if it went back and forth yes. and it ended up like there, it would kind of make sense. Right. But the fact that it was so one-sided for the Cardinals, you know, James Conner breaks a beautiful run. I mean, Josh Dobbs played a really good game. He had that uh, kind of a beast mode type of uh, rushing touchdown there. And uh, that's why people like Josh Dobbs, by the way is you have games like this where he's just Feisty. really efficient, moves with his legs. What would you say? Feisty? Gritty? Feisty, yeah. He has those games, man. He, can, he runs the offense, and 
he could be effective. Um, but yeah, it was just it was weird that the game ended up uh, one so one sided on both ways. Um, Saquon Barkley comes out of the game injured. Mm. Didn't and, look great. Uh, that's going to be a challenge here. Yeah, that didn't look great at all. Um, they, I mean, he it was it's his ankle. He looked pretty pissed off. I don't know. I mean, that feels like a, a, you're going to be missing him for at least a little bit of time. Yeah, I mean, on on one hand, you see, like, I'm not going to. Running backs can be fragile, man. That's all. Um, <laughs> but you see his effectiveness, right? Get you know, the couple touchdowns were were good and impressive, and he is a part of this offense, right? You, I, I don't think good offenses ever run through the running back. Bijan Robinson might make me rethink that, given yeah. the circumstances there. But I don't. Most of the time. Derrick Henry, maybe a little bit. Bijan Robinson maybe can do it. Nick Chubb with the Browns. You usually don't run the offense through the running back. When the Giants have been at their best, like well, who was more effective yesterday, Daniel Jones or Saquon Barkley? Who was more important? Of course it's Daniel Jones. He's the one hitting uh, two deep bombs to Jalen Hyatt and getting the ball to Darren Waller and getting the ball to Darius Slayton. And, oh, by the way, Sa- Saquon Barkley can be the other impact player on top of those. Um, that's when the Giants will be at their best. And certainly you want Saquon Barkley doing that more than anyone else as far as the, you know, the Giants' depth chart goes. But um, this was more like what we expected from the Giants. Again, it's just odd that it took six quarters yeah. to get going. And now it's like, all right, now that's the offense we kind of saw in the preseason where they're distributing the ball and Jones is doing a really nice job as a runner and as a passer and much more effective. All that said, it's against a pretty weak Cardinals team. Yeah. It, was, it, it was due. And I do think that the fact that their defense, now it it helped in the second half, but the fact that they were so exposed in the first half was more of that. Remember, we had that debate about their preseason and their training camp. Like, Darren Waller's unstoppable. The Giants' offense looks great. Jalen Hyatt scoring a deep touchdown every three seconds. Like, like, all right, how much of that is that's a really good sign for the Giants' offense and how much of that is actually a pretty big red flag that their defense might not be good? Um, because of all the young players and all the turnover and all the changes, and their defense has not been able to stop anybody outside of the second half against the Cardinals offense that we expected to be terrible heading into the season. So that's a, a bit of a concern for them overall. But big comeback, important win for them, because if they'd carried on just yeah. getting annihilated the way they were, there would be crisis talks this morning in, in New York. So huge Huge second-half turnaround, and also getting the win, I think, was important as well. Um, Two other things. Barbarian watch. We got another sack. Dennis Gardak now has three in two games, so on pace, ahead of pace for his double digits. Uh, Victor Dimukeje on the defensive line for Arizona played really well in this game. Now, the man only played like 20 snaps or whatever, but the dude was making some plays. I appreciate that you uh, they give the shout. I love giving the good shout out to you know players that play well. I simply wrote down are. one of my notes for this game was Victor Dimikaje a baller? Question mark because he was making he was making some plays. You know, not gonna lie. Even if he's balling out, I'm probably gonna not gonna make that note because I don't want to have to mess up his name. You have a pronunciation guide now. You should never be messing up. I another do. Name. There is a pronunciation Google Doc out mm-hmm. there. All right, two more games to discuss. Washington Commanders. 35, Denver Broncos 33. Commanders move to 2 0. Broncos fall to 0 2. Mm. Some similarities to the last game we just, just discussed. A one sided affair early, and then Washington brings it back. But then Denver 
Hits a Hail Mary. <laughs> Down eight, a Hail Mary to get within two, but the two-point conversion falls incomplete. Commanders pull it out 35-33. What and, you got here, Sam? And a ridiculous Hail Mary. Like Yes. It, it was like a, way short. Yeah. Well, not way short. Like a 60 Not way short, but short. Long. You know, it was a long yeah. pass. It was a few yards short of the end zone. Dro- yeah, drops you don't usually see one that lands short of the end zone becoming a touchdown. Yes, drops a couple of yards short of the end zone and then just sort of like bounces over helmets and hands into the end zone where a guy like grabs it, touchdown, like, whoa. Um, did you read the Seth Wickersham sort of profile piece on Sean Payton that came out a few weeks ago? No, but you told me some of the highlights. So it was very good. I mean, most of the things Seth Wickersham writes are, are very good and worth a read. Um, but it was pretty fascinating as a like a portrait of the 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 mindset of Sean Payton because he is firmly convinced that the league has a vendetta against him and is actively working its way to ruin him. And to be fair. Of all the people in the NFL, Sean Payton has more reason than most to suspect things like that, right? He was obviously part of the whole Bounty Gate thing. There was discussion at the time about whether they overreacted in terms of suspending him versus just Greg Williams, et cetera, the guy that like set it up and orchestrated it. Um, the Saints obviously are the victims of one of the worst like non-calls in NFL history in the NFC Championship game with the um, the, the nope defensive pass interference where the dude just got taken out by Nicole uh, Nickel Roby Coleman and you know so it sort of makes sense that he at least has this thought but like it painted a picture of just how much that gnaws at him like it essentially made the argument that he stepped away from the Saints because he was fed up of Roger Goodell in the league like fixing the game against him and only came back to the Broncos because he was convinced that as the Waltons being the richest owners in the NFL by a mile, like the league would not be screwing them over, right? And as you know, I root for nothing in football more than the funniest possible outcome on all occasions, right? So nothing is more funny than, oh, there was another element in this article that, that made a point of how important Sean Payton believed it was to get off to a good start, you know? He believed that's what helped him build the Saints was they won their first few games and, you know, that took all the pressure away and then he could get on with the job of actually doing the job. So you add those two things together and you've got now that the Broncos are 0-2 and that they got screwed at the end of this game by a crappy officiating no-call, the two-point conversion at the end of the Hail Mary, there were multiple instances of egregious defensive holding or pass interference neither of which were called and you're like look it's sad for sean payton but that is objectively funny that a like paranoid conspiracy theorist has now just watched his team get hosed out of a win by a no call from the officials that's your biggest takeaway that's what i got that's my high level takeaway from this game is that is an objectively hysterical way for that game to end I've got some different takeaways. Okay. That's what that is. I mean, yeah. I didn't know the Sean Payton conspiracy theory, theory thing. Obviously, I know the bad calls. But um, Marvin Mims averaged 56.5 yards per target, <laughs> Sam. I suggested in the Twitter sphere multiple times now that uh, he deserves two to three deep shots a game. He got two yesterday. Mm-hmm. One for 60, one for whatever else the other one was, 53. Yeah. Yeah, do more do of that. Yeah. He only had two targets. Right. 
two catches for 113 yards. So early on, the Broncos looked like they're running away with this. And it was, uh, that was again, like the old school Russ. What I can't figure out here, Sam, is why there are pockets of the game that we say, this looks right. This looks like old school Russell Wilson-led team. There was two deep shots off of play action. He throws a beautiful deep ball. Marvin Mims is the beneficiary there. Marvin Mims creates big plays. Um, They had some other big, big plays in there as well. Offense is cooking. The you know they're running a little bit. Russ is making some plays with his legs. Probably taking too many sacks. I mean, he gets ends up getting sacked seven times. He's just kind of running around taking some negative plays. But there are pockets of the game that look good. Hits a shallow cross for a touchdown. The Broncos are up big, and then the but the consistency is not there. I don't know how to parse that out. Right, like it's not a everything's falling apart. Everything looks bad. There are stretches of play that look good. So Russell Wilson, I I feel, has gone almost from a guy that we used to call streaky, right, where he would have full games where he looked great, and then one week he just looked terrible. Has his streakiness gone from a game-to-game to to just like a quarter-to-quarter type of thing? That's what I'm feeling here watching this Broncos offense. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think a big part of it is the receiver question. Like, Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton are playing basically every snap. That makes sense. They're, you know, the two obvious players in that offense to feature. But Brandon Johnson, and you can't, you know, can't criticize the man too much because he's the guy that caught the touchdown at the end that gave them a shot to win it in the end zone. But Brandon Johnson. 50-yard touchdown, man. Right. 30 snaps on offense. Little Jordan Humphrey, 19 snaps on offense. Marvin Mims, 14 snaps of offense, two of which Give were, Mims more plays! Yes, two of which were 50-yard touchdown bombs, like or 50-yard t- bombs. Look, I'm no genius, but at least try it a third time. Just see. Just see if they'll cover it the third time. Even if you're not taking the shot the third time, like, why is this guy getting half the snaps of Brandon Johnson? You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is off. Like that yards per out run, a million. <laughs> Try more, do more. So, you know, again, small sample size performances do not necessarily scale up and mean that a guy is going to dominate with a bigger workload, but they should mean that if you have ineffective receivers taking snaps, we should at least play with this dynamic and see if we can move this distribution a little bit and it has a beneficiary effect on the offense because right now you've got Marvin Mims who remember was one of these guys that everybody loved in the draft like it didn't necessarily mean you were going to put him in the first round but like everybody liked that guy nobody I didn't see a single scouting report that was like Marvin Mims is garbage and is never going to be a good NFL receiver and you saw that about like people said that about Jordan Addison right or Quentin Johnston. Like, there were more negative draft reports about those guys than there were Marvin Mims. So, if everybody liked him, and right now everybody, everything we see from him is like a dominant deep play, let's give the man some more playing time and see what the problems are, rather than just assuming little Jordan Humphrey belongs in the offense more than he does. Yes, please. I mean, look, that, so the Broncos get up 21-3, to three, uh, in part on the back of, Marvin Mims being awesome. And the commanders just start chipping away, man. They start chipping away. And it was um, a couple key plays. You know, like right before the half, Sam Howell hits this uh, 35-yard cover two shot with about 20 seconds left in the half. So these are some of those underrated plays in the game. Right before the half, cover two shot. They were down 21-3. to That ends up leading to 
uh, a field. I'm sorry, they were down 21 to 11 at the time, leads to a field goal to get within a touchdown. These little plays add up. Um, one of the big plays was to tie the game, Sam Howell to Terry McLaurin, an absolute incredible dime. Box. I mean, throw, catch, just outstanding. And look, I talked about Sam Howell. There were plays early in the game. He is holding the ball way too long. The commander's pass blocking was not bad. They did not do a bad job. There was too many negative plays for Sam Howell. It was painful early watching him hold the ball. Not Justin Fields painful, but painful. And But he got out of it, man. He threw the ball really, really well. If he could just cut back on those negative plays, Commanders might have something here. And he again, he played really well down the stretch, had those plays that got back into him. The Commanders got the run game going. The defense stepped up at the same time. The Broncos' offense decided to collapse. So really nice win here for the Commanders. I, I'm starting to really like Sam Howell. Um, I find him quite a fascinating quarterback because I can't think of too many players before who have been really quite good but with one glaringly obvious flaw to his game, right? That's kind of where I'm landing right now with Sam Howell, which is almost everything he does is good, and he's capable of some spectacular stuff, but like, but the sacks thing is terrible. I mean, he's he's bad at that, like taking too many sacks, inviting some bad ones, and turning way too many pressure plays into sacks, and those are negative plays that may or may not, you know, influence the outcome of the game at the end of it, but... It's like an obvious real weakness in his game right now. But everything else is actually pretty good and fun to watch. Um, and it's working. I mean, that pass to, to Terry McLaurin was spectacular. Incredible catch as well. The pass uh, for Logan Thomas that ended up almost getting him killed with a terrible Kareem Jackson hit was a really nice play as well. He made a bunch of really nice plays in this game. And that was despite... I mean, yeah, he he made it look worse, I think, at times. But... Denver's pass rush showed up. Remember, like, week one, it was like, do the Broncos have any pass rush at all? They had multiple plays in this game where they did win and win early and win cleanly, and then there was some more in there as well where Sam Howell probably made it look worse than it was. But the yeah, sorry, were, pass protection was not perfect for the commanders. I apologize. But, like, yeah, Sam Howell just got to get rid of the ball and not take some. Yeah, I mean, there were also plays where, like, it was literally a perfect pocket, and then he bailed out of the back end of it, and Randy Gregory chased him down from behind, turns it into a sack. Like, you know, it was a mixed bag. But there were plays in there where the pass protection uh, was under strain, and Sam Howell ends up making plays anyway. I just – I've come out of the first couple of weeks very impressed by Sam Howell, despite, like, the obvious weakness in one specific area of his game. Yeah, and look, I know the analytically the sack rate is not generally something that you improve. Um, you can, I mean, I think schematically you can help get rid of the ball and you can change it a little bit. But if he does, if he does improve that, Sam, you know, we've again the Commanders might have something there. Um, couple defensive linemen to highlight for Washington here too. Deron Payne had a huge game. Remember, he got paid this offseason. Uh, maybe. He might actually be better now than he's been over the last couple of years. Payne had some great, uh, big plays, and then Chase Young played football. Man, yeah. he played football. Uh, on he got his, a ton of pressure. He played 40, 40 something snaps with uh, what do we have? Five BDs. Dude, I just clicked off it. Seven pressures, mm. including negated plays. Chase Young showing up here, so it was good to see him. Good to see Deron Payne. 
And that's the Washington formula. I know they ended up giving a lot, up a lot of points, but you know they settled down after the slow start. There's a Hail Mary in there. Washington defense can uh, can be really effective with that defensive line, especially with Chase Young back. Yeah, he had the best uh, pass rush win rate in the game on either side of the ball. 26.7% is a crazy high number and, and really impressive first being back. By the way, the other thing, the defensive version of Marvin Mims for Denver, I think, is Nick Benito, who... Yes, has been a productive situational pass rusher. And last week, when they had no pressure whatsoever, basically wasn't on the field. This week, he had 24 pass rushes and led the team both in pressures with five and pass rush win rate at 25. percent So they've already, really yeah, yeah, they've already shown that they have recognized and are willing to scale up a guy's workload if there's an area of weakness. Well, Marvin Mims is the obvious corollary to that um, on offense of Receiver is not necessarily a strength right now. You've got a guy tearing it up in limited snaps. Let's uh, crank that upwards. Just a couple second-round model guys for the Broncos who need more time, Sam. That's all they are. Right. All right, let's wrap it up with Sunday night football. Double-check, make sure I didn't miss any games. But uh, Sunday night football, Miami Dolphins 24, New England Patriots 17. Dolphins move to 2-0. Patriots fall to 0-2. One of the most fun finishes, weird finishes, unfortunate finishes because it was fun. Uh, in the that you'll see, uh, pass short of the sticks to Hunter Henry. He's about to go down. He laterals it to guard Cole Strange. I don't know who he lateraled it to, but Cole Strange said, That's my ball. Yeah, he went up and got it and then tried to just, I don't know, man, tried to gut it out for a first down, needed a couple yards, came just short. Terry McCauley, just like the uh, he's um. The guy, the Saturday Night Live people that are just, you know, the Debbie Downer or whatever. They it was initially a first down, and Terry's over there like, no, nah, I don't think he's got it, guys. This game's gonna end. And we're no, like we just we're rooting for excitement here. That anyway. is the classic example of a play where if it's cool enough, let it go, let it go. It was close enough, right? It was an amazing play, and it was close enough. Who cares about the rules? Just give him, you know, it's a, we, there's wiggle room in this, right? We didn't, we didn't look too close at the, the one shin equals one knee equals two feet thing. Why, why do we care about the rules right now? Let it stand. The cool rule. Mm-hmm. The cool rule. Um, high level, the re- it felt like Miami was in control of this game. New England hung tough, and they, you know, couple late touchdowns to to keep it close but uh Miami's offense man to a just precision once again for the most part uh, did did throw a bit of a you know a chuck into kind of a whatever it was chuck and duck to uh Christian Gonzalez for an interception short but other than that man Miami just feels fast obviously but everything's fast everything's quick right the motion is quick the motion is right before the snap where you can't adjust to it. The players are fast. They're quick. Tua, the quick release. It's all fast, man, and it is so tough for defenses to account for. So they did a nice job, as always, creating mismatches, getting the ball out of Tua's hands extremely quickly, and uh, just moving the ball offensively. Yeah, this was an interesting game because I think it started off as as quite a close back and forth that was schematically very interesting. Then it got way away from New England and reached the point where late in the game, I think Chris made made this comment on the broadcast, like the Dolphins, Mike McDaniel must be asking himself, 
Like, how the hell does New England have a chance of winning this? I mean, they have the ball yeah. late in the game where that lateral rugby play happened. Like, that's the drive to tie it up or whatever. Like, this, the, the Patriots shouldn't have been anywhere near this game by the end of it, and, and yet they were. Um, but early in the game, the Patriots open up with basically that Brian Flores defense that the Vikings were running against uh, Philadelphia for similar reasons. Um, they were like, running this three safety look and inviting the run from Miami because they didn't want to get gashed by Tyreek Hill in the passing game and 466 yards and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of working. Like they were at least making Miami get success by being patient and drawing it out, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, And then when New England got the ball, like they were getting the ball out quickly as well. They were having some success. And then Bradley Chubb forces a fumble on Douglas, the receiver, the rookie receiver, gets a turnover, and that changes the whole outlook of the game. Like, New England, New England's offense doesn't function after that. Didn't they – did they end up getting Douglas back on the field, or did he just get back? I don't think so. That? I think that was it for him. Dude, I think that's shooting yourself. Like, that's cutting off your nose to spite your face. DeMar- yeah, I think DeMar- that's Douglas. way too old school, man. Even Chris mentioned it on the show. A yeah. guy fumbles, like – all right, you're benched. Right. It's like you, you're you're actively making the team worse. Force that. Yeah, that. exactly. It, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. You are voluntarily making yourself worse to make a point. Um, four snaps for Douglas. One of them, that was a nice play. He just, And look, every receiver that's played football at any level has done that, right? Where you've ca- you just didn't know there was a guy chasing you down from the other angle and he hits the ball before you knew a hit was incoming. And as much as that's why they preach five points of contact, high and tight, keep, you know, when you're running and you don't think there's a hit incoming, you just involuntarily relax that a little bit. You don't have it as high and tight as you should do. And sure, that's the point Bill Belichick is trying to make, and it's an important one, but d- dude, at some point people make mistakes cut him some slack. He's also one of the few guys you have that might make a play for you, and the game's getting away. But the, fu- the fumble's just a weird one because if you blow a coverage, are you out for the... Like, you don't get benched just for one blown coverage right. or for one dropped pass or... I know... Th- whatever it is, man. It's just... It, it doesn't mean you're going to fumble the next three times you have the ball either. It's like, you know, chances are you got your fumble out of your system and, and you're going to fix it and you're going to be a good player. Yeah, and look, um, maybe you can make the argument, you know, sit him down for a while so he knows, like make the point. Yeah. But late in the game, put him back on. Like now you need yeah. him again. So you Tomo- made your point. Mario Douglas has been fantastic during training camp and with how often New England's throwing the ball underneath, that's the type of player you need with the ball in his hands. Yeah. Because uh, the Patriots were not completing anything. There was a point in the game where I, I don't know if it ended up when it changed, but Mac Jones was 0 for 7 on passes, 10 plus yards, and 18 for 18 underneath. It was very uh, just a dink and dunk type of passing game for New England. Mac Jones throws a pick to Xavier and Howard when he does try to get down the field. The, the downfield passing game was not good yeah. for New England, but um, they hung tough, man. It was, it was, it, it ended up being back and forth, even though Miami, they were up 21 to three at the half. I thought Tua was just outstanding just in the two minute drill just before the half. Hits Braxton Berrios with one of the throws of the game, steps up, hits him with a nice in stride 18 yarder. So Miami's got it in hand. New England fights back, but then it's Raheem Mostert, right? 43 yarder uh, to go up two scores in the second half. Uh, Mostert ended up having some really nice, uh, really nice carries in there. And again, it's just more speed for Miami. They're not just fast at receiver. 
Mostert might actually be the fastest player on the team, former track star. Yeah, I was just looking up the Mac Jones depth stuff. Um, through three quarters, it was 18 of 18, uh, short of 10 yards, and then 0 for 7 above 10 yards. For the game, it ended up being 25 of 26 for 161 yards, short of 10 yards. And then above 10 yards late in the game, he got a little bit back. He was 6 of 15 for 70 yards with a touchdown and an interception. So very, like, underneath, Mac Jones was efficient, was delivering where it needed to be, but basically every shot he took wasn't happening. Patriots did not have a reception longer than 14. 14, Sam! So you had a couple 10-yard passes in there, but you didn't. they didn't have a com- completion longer than 14 yards, including catch and run, and he dropped back, you know, almost 50 times. So, yeah, New England's got to find a way to add some kind of explosive element. And, and look, they had some of those plays against Philadelphia last week. But, yeah. yeah, this week it was not good. Miami did a nice job taking away. They did. Stuff. And it, it it was one of those sort of situations, I think, where it started to compound on itself. Um, like Miami's defense started really flying around the field, uh, getting really aggressive. And the Patriots didn't have the deep threat to take to back it off. They, they couldn't scare them back off the line of scrimmage. So, like guys like Andrew Van Ginkel is flying around the line. They're starting to stack the line with six guys, just really threaten things. Um, and they like the Patriots just couldn't back them off. Yeah, I mean, a big part of that is New England's offensive line having Calvin Anderson at right tackle for Darian Lowe with his, I think it was his first NFL start, former undrafted free agent or seventh rounder. Uh, part of it's just not trusting those guys against you know what can be a pretty good Miami pass rush. Um, but one other interesting thing to highlight here, the field goal block that New England had, Brendan Schooler yeah. uh, using short motion on the defense to get a running head start on the field goal, gets a block. They try it again later. Chris highlights maybe this distracts the kicker. He's worried about it. He ends up pulling it. So two field, that's one of the reasons why it was close. Miami misses two field goals, one of which was blocked with a unique defensive structure there well not just that i mean if you start you you ask like how does a game like this end up close despite the feels being miami is just destroying them on both sides of the ball well one of the ways it happens is a sequence of ridiculous plays all going in one direction so you know new england had a few really high leverage plays that they got the better of they at one point they showed this heavy blitz at the line knowing the tool was just going to dump it right over the top, and then Kyle Duggar gets back, gets his hand on it, breaks it up. Um, That's a good play. Like, stops a touchdown, really. Like, if that – it was like a cover zero blitz that if you get the pass off the back of it, it's probably a touchdown with the speed they have. They he, – he breaks that up. The very next play was that blocked field goal that you're talking about. So, back-to-back plays, we go from maybe a touchdown to actually we just blocked the field goal. Um on New England, they had a touchdown with probably multiple illegal elements to it in terms of a guy blocking downfield, an illegal player downfield. Like, they get a touchdown that, no questions asked. It's week two. Let's not worry about it. Um, they Obviously, the Tua interception. Like, Christian Gonzalez was essentially playing safety on that play, by the way. Like, New England, another element of this is the Patriots were really banged up a corner, had to go pretty deep into the bench. Um, Christian Gonzalez is playing like a, a cover two safety and it's just a badly underthrown pass by Tua uh, to Tyree Kill. Really nice play by Gonzalez to make the play, but turnover there. And then the third and one play, Tua drops the snap before the miss 55-yarder. So 
four or five plays all stacking up in New England's favor, and that's how you end up with a drive to potentially go and, and try and tie it. Yeah, that was a great play. Gonzalez was playing pure safety, flips his hips, goes up and gets it. Yeah, I'm watching it right now. Yeah. You got the, you got the clicker. Got um, the clicker. Watch it. That was a great play. But going back to that blocked field goal, <laughs> so nobody has essentially seen this before. And they're like, oh, is this, is this like a, a special teams version of like the Miami motion? You know, these getting Tyree kill or running start at the snap. And I mean, there's a reason that this doesn't happen every single play because you're not in control of the snap the way you are on right. offense. Right. And it's, it's almost certainly something that they saw on tape to be able to time it up that way. Because if you watch what he's doing, He's not timing the snap. Like, he's not looking at the center. He's not looking at the ball. He's watching the kicker's sequence, right? He's obviously timed the kicker's sequence so that when he makes this specific move, now I've got two seconds before the ball is snapped. And that's what he's timing, which is good. I mean, it's impressive and it worked. And you can, like, the kicker can't necessarily screw with his uh, sequence in a game, but he can screw with it week to week. You know, they they can change things week to week. So... I don't think you're going to – you might see a, a few other teams try this, but I don't think this is be, going to become like this cheat code on special teams because like the offense can simply mess with the timing of the kicker and the kick and the snap and all those kinds of things. And that's the kind of thing where like, he's running laterally for 10 yards and if that changes, he's he has to stop dead. It, it neutralizes it. So really amazing play. Great, you know, great bit of – prep that they almost certainly saw something on tape and it were and they exploited it in the game i just think that that's probably pretty much a one-time deal but it might be done so miami moves to two and oh first place in the afc east patriots fall to zero and two for the first time since 2001 and then in week three they played the jets and tom brady came in no it was week two forget it so 0 and 2 for the Patriots. Rough start. They got the Jets next week, though, with Zach Wilson. That's who uh Belichick and the Patriots have pretty much owned. So Yikes. Would would have been more fun with Aaron Rodgers coming in. We're gonna say that every week. This matchup with the Chiefs would have been more fun with Aaron Rodgers than Zach Wilson. Mm. Uh credit to Miami, man. They look fast. They're playing fast. They're playing quick. If Tua stays healthy, man, they are they do look legit. Second straight year, they've started out hot. So Yeah, and and I think I mean schematically they seem to be winning you know like they've been i think ahead of the curve on on in both games but that list of whatever it was four or five individual plays that went away but went against them and in several cases unfortunately in this game for them to come out and still win is is a really big statement on the road with four or five big plays bouncing against you to still be the clear better team and end up with a victory is an important thing Sorry, that's another factor. Miami's two and zero on with they haven't played at home yet. Right, they don't even ha- they haven't even had the September Miami advantage. New England's zero and two. They've played two home games now. Two good teams, Eagles and Dolphins, but the Patriots have six home games left. The Dolphins have six road games left. Just another factor here when you look at their records to start the season. No, like I mean, Miami have done this, looking the better team, being impressive, and have not had yet yeah, like haven't had the advantages go their way. They've actually battled against that stuff which really bodes well for them as we go through the season. All right, man. It's week two in the books. Other than two Monday night football games here, we got the uh, with the Panth- Panthers-Saints and Steelers-Browns couple division matchups here tonight. And then uh, you'll be back tomorrow to recap all those here on YouTube. You and I will be back on Wednesday 
with more PFF NFL podcast. We appreciate everybody tuning in on YouTube. And uh, somebody said, request, why should we give you a thumbs up? Because we're spending two and a half hours going game by game at 7 a.m. on a Monday for you. We're doing it all for you. So if you're so inclined, please click the button that has a thumbs up on it on your way out. Uh, okay. Is that better? Begging, yeah. That's, that's all right. Do you have anything else? No, we're, we we took us two and a half hours. We're done. We're we're, we're overtime. My kids are outside waiting to barge in the door. Yeah. So, thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you either tomorrow or Wednesday. PFF NFL podcast. <laughs>